0: How do all those valuation systems work anyway? We'll talk about that and more with Todd Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Learn to play the winner's
2: way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt.
0: And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 30th. It's show number 25 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davich, your host, and it's another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire about valuation systems, differences of owner opinion, projecting saves, and more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols looking at the Cubs' catching situation, the San Francisco closer situation, Corey Bellinger's future situation, and much more. And from the American League, it's Jock Thompson looking at the Yankees' injury eruption, Tampa's trading eruption, Jorge Soler's hitting eruption, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, in the Minor League Minute. Baseball HQ Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon reports on Cleveland catching prospect Francisco Mejia. In our playing time commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Brian Bloomfield looks at possible rotation changes in St. Louis and Toronto. In our frequent flyers comment, analyst Alex Becky looks at Cubs catcher Victor Caratini and San Diego relief pitcher Phil Maton. And in our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchup's analyst Greg Fishwick looks at Houston right-hander Francis Martez, Texas left-hander Cole Hamels, and other pitchers going this weekend. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about 2017 ADPs versus 2017 realities. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Two national birthdays coming up in the next few days. Summer's in full swing, so we gotta talk some baseball. Baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League And leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio.
3: Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here.
0: Well, let's start with some tough news out of Washington. Shortstop Trey Turner, who's having a terrific year, is going to be lost for quite a while. He has a broken wrist. He was hit by a pitch against the Cubs. Uh, Phil Hertz is on the coverage for BaseballHQ.com in playing time today. Of course, Nick, we can't say anybody's going to replace Trey Turner, but somebody has to take the playing time. Who's it likely to be?
3: It looks now like, like primarily to be Stephen Drew taking over the playing time at, at this point. Uh, Drew is, uh, Drew is having a decent season. Uh, really actually hitting, hitting very well. Uh, a 333 batting average and 54 at bats, but only a 262 expected batting average. And certainly, uh, you're right, not going to replace Trey Turner. Uh, Drew is hitting the ball fairly hard. A, uh, a, a league average, uh, uh, power index of 98, uh, 128 expected power index. Uh, certainly does not have, uh, Trey Turner's speed. And that's going to be the issue that uh, that Washington is going to miss the most in that uh, in that spot in the lineup.
0: What about this guy Wilmer Defoe?
3: Well, you know, Wilmer Defoe will see some will see some playing time too, um, and uh, you know, it's hard to it's one of those guys that you hardly you're a little hard to know what to expect at this point. He's at only 194, so right now below the Mendoza line and a BPV of minus three. Uh, so uh, this guy is not someone you want to uh, to count on. A, a 42 uh, power index. Uh, speed is a bit above average. He's stolen uh, one base in 93 at bats, so has not been allowed to run a lot, uh, but does seem to have some latent speed. Our speed index says 129. So uh, there might be a, a stolen base or two there if they decide to put that 194 batting average into the lineup.
0: Well, I just did a study for BaseballHQ.com for my Master Notes segment. And uh, what I did was I just looked at all the players in baseball and ranked them from top to bottom by dollar value. And Trey Turner right now is a top 15 guy. He's a first round guy. And I remember before the season, Nick, probably you do too as well, uh, that there was a lot of debate about where to pick Trey Turner this year because most people were saying he can't repeat what he did last year. If you take him in the first round, you're going to be disappointed. And it certainly wasn't true, although it is now with this injury.
3: Well, you know, the, the thing with Trey Turner is the stolen bases with speed at a at a real premium uh, in, uh, in, in Major League Baseball and really at a premium in fantasy baseball, those stolen bases are going to be almost impossible to replace.
0: But he was also hitting just generally pretty well all the way around. I mean, of course, you're not going to expect a ton of power from Trey Turner, but in the past, he's demonstrated a little bit of it. And so far this year, he had seven home runs, which is not nothing
3: that's true i mean uh, you know if you're getting uh, 35 stolen bases and seven home runs that's that's decent plus a, a reasonable batting average so you're right it's uh very difficult to replace trey turner in a fantasy lineup at the moment
0: a lot of runs scored too he's well on his way to a 100 run season a seventy, sixty five, seventy 65 70 stolen bases it's really tough another shortstop onto the dl with another injury caused by another hit by pitch nick Ahmed of arizona went on the 10-day disabled list on wednesday because of a Broken right hand, uh, Trevor Rosenthal of the Cardinals hit him. Uh, Nick Ahmed had three pins inserted into his hand. Ouch. He's going to be shut down from baseball activity for at least six weeks. The team has recalled shortstop Kettle Marte. They acquired him in the offseason from Seattle. He comes up from Class AAA Reno. Rob Carroll covered this for playing time today, so I assume Marte steps right in?
3: Yeah, I think Marte will step right in. He's been hitting very well at AAA Reno, but of course, you know, you never know how that will how that will transfer to the majors. Uh, I think one for four in his first game last night. Uh, so certainly going to be uh, be uh, difficult to see how Marte is going to do. Uh, it's uh, the kind of thing that uh, I think as a fantasy owner, you've got a real question here. Do you go out and pick up Kevin Marte uh, or not? Um, our projections show a 274 batting average and 67 at bats. I'm not sure if we projected, adjusted those projections upwards yet because it seems to me like he's likely to get more than 67 at-bats given the amount of time that uh, that Ahmed is, is going to be out.
0: Arizona was also getting some pretty useful middle infield play from Brandon Rury and especially Chris Owings, who's a very uh, high-value player this year. Is there any chance that uh, Marte has to sort of wiggle and w- worm his way into some playing time
3: here? Yeah, there may be. I mean, Chris Owings uh, certainly has been, been shifting between uh, the infield and the outfield and may see more infield time. Uh, at this point, so that Marte is certainly not assured to um, uh, to get a lot of playing time uh, if Owens, in fact, moves p- kind of permanently into that shortstop hole.
0: And then you have Daniel Descalso, who's been floating around. I know that the uh, Diamond, uh, the Diamondbacks recalled Ildemaro Vargas from AAA as well. Uh, he's a 10-year minor league be- veteran. He's Kind of hitting 300 or so with seven bags in Reno, but I don't think he's going to pick up any playing time at all. It doesn't sound like.
3: No, I wouldn't think so. I, you know, my guess is right now it'll be a mix and match with the manager to see what the best lineup is and where the best place Owens, we know is going to be in there somewhere. But the question is, do you put him in the infield? Do you put him in the outfield? Uh, probably a better uh, defensively, a better with him in the outfield. Uh, in, uh, offensively, better with him in a at a higher hitting uh, offense in the outfield. So. Uh, you know, one of those things that's going to be an interesting managerial call to see exactly how this plays out. And it may be a week or so before we know what the, uh, the real playing time implications are.
0: I know some people were surprised to see the Cubs catcher Miguel Montero designated for assignment on Wednesday. They called up catcher Victor Caratini from Class AAA Iowa. Tom Kephart covered this for Baseball HQ in playing time today. So what are the playing time ramifications for this Miguel Montero move? And how surprising was it to you?
3: You know, it's it's interesting. Montero has not been having that good a season, and so certainly the uh, the um, uh, poor, uh, immature immaturity that he displayed and blasting and uh, blasting Jacarita is, is uh, the kind of thing that got him cut very, very quickly. Um, playing time implications. Wilson Contreras has been doing well, and he's going to get more playing time. Uh, I, I mean, so, certainly the guy's got to have some time off, but at this point, Contreras is uh, two hundred and eighteen at bats, has nine home runs. Hitting 252, 38 RBIs, so has been actually delivering reasonably well for the Cubs, and and we'll see a bit of an increase in playing time as a result. Uh, the the uh, the guy that called up, uh, Victor Caratini, will see playing time as well. We're we're figuring a 25 percent playing time increase uh, for Caratini, uh, but again, this is not a guy we projected for a lot of at bats. So my guess is that what you'll see from Caratini is a, uh, a once or twice a week start at most, uh, and I don't have many expectations for him.
0: Uh, Jeremy Deloney covered Caratini in the daily call ups. I love that daily call ups, Nick. Uh, He's got a career 786 OPS in the minor leagues. He's a pretty good hitter for using the whole field, but questions about power is what Jeremy says. He hasn't really fully developed yet as a catcher either. Uh, Defensively, it might be a bit of a question mark, especially his arm and footwork. So, uh, of course, everybody's trying to find an advantage. And if Caratini's back there and he can't throw guys out, Nah, it could be tough for him to get a lot of playing time. But uh, Jeremy says he could grow into a starting big league catcher. So if you're in one of those uh, keeper or dynasty type formats and you have room, not a bad speculative pick. Uh, moving on, the Cardinals sent uh, shortstop Aledmus Diaz down to the minors. Again, a little bit of a surprise. He's not playing well, but he was uh, quite a find over the last year or so. Phil Hertz again on this coverage. What happens in the Cardinals infield?
3: Well, there are two, uh, there are two guys who are likely to get the playing time, I think, in the Cardinals' One of them is Alex Mejia, who was called up and uh, uh, looks like he could get a uh, uh, some some of that playing time. Uh, Our our call up, the rating in the uh, call ups column was a 6D player, so this is a utility infielder. It's not someone who's likely to get uh, a whole lot of playing time or do a whole lot for you. Triple A Springfield, rather at Triple A Memphis this year. 38 at bats, hitting looks like about 260. 333 on base percentage, not a not a guy that you're going to count on for a lot of uh, a lot in terms of uh, just coming up the majors. In fact, maybe more of a fill-in than uh, uh, than you would like. The other guy that could get playing time is uh, Paul DeJong. Uh, we'll see a playing time increase, and in. uh, Paul DeJong uh, has actually been playing a while this season. 20 uh, 97 at bats, 27 hits, 278 batting average, five home runs, 14 RBIs that's where i think the playing time increase is likely to come uh, dejong shows an interesting uh, power index 133 power index which uh, certainly shows that there's some some power there uh, although only a 97 expected power index so we might see see that go down so i would look at dejong as the guy who is likely to get the playing time uh if you had el diaz on your roster and are trying to replace him uh, there're probably better better guys out there
0: Uh, The uh, Phil Hertz coverage also mentioned Greg Garcia but says he offers little to fantasy owners and I have to say I agree but uh, Nick also we should remember that the card sent Randall Gritchuk down to the minors and then brought him back a couple of weeks later so we shouldn't assume that Ledmus Diaz is is gone and forgotten.
3: I think that's true I mean it certainly could uh, certainly could be back I mean we cut his playing time way back but you know, Diaz wasn't doing that poorly, hitting 260 with seven home runs, four stolen bases. So he could, in fact, be, be back, uh, perhaps, uh, a little bit sooner than, than, uh, we might expect
0: and at least part of the reason he was sent down was defensive struggles he uh, was not fielding the position very well so maybe they just sent him down to get his head on straight in that regard uh, over in san francisco closer mark melanson was having a pretty good year he's on the dl with a right pronator strain i gotta say nick to me pronator sounds like something in the exhaust system of your car it, it looks like you need a new pronator mr davitt uh, Whatever it is, Melanson's having trouble with it, and he's going to be on the DL. Rob Carroll is on the Giants' beat in playing time today, so who gets the save opportunities in San Francisco, few as they may be?
3: Yeah, few as they may be is right. And you know, the guy the guy that got the first save was Hunter Strickland, who of course has been a a fine uh, uh, a fine uh, eighth inning guy in there uh, in San Francisco for a long time. But we're projecting the guy that they're saying is going to get the say, the uh, uh, the save chances is a familiar name, but not in the national league. And that's Sam Dyson who uh, struggled so badly in Texas that the Rangers finally released him uh, and got picked up by San Francisco. So uh, Sam Dyson looks like the po- possibility for getting some save chances. Uh, you know, the, poor, the whole Sam Dyson story is kind of, is kind of strange in terms of what happened with him in, uh, in Texas. And he just never could get his head quite on straight. He's done done pretty well since he's come over to San Francisco, only allowed uh, two earned runs, uh, since the 13th of June and in about three six seven appearances so and that was all that came in one appearance so Sam Dyson uh, was very good last year for the Rangers might start again to be very good for San Francisco it's a
0: bit uh, more favorable a park to pitch in at least I know sometimes you know Nick a guy gets onto a bad track uh, as an athlete especially a pitcher in the big leagues and The change of scenery alone can be a help for a guy like Sam Dyson, who every time he stepped on that mound in Texas, people were booing. Uh, He's obviously on thin ice with the manager. Maybe just shipping him out and getting off into a new situation where all of that baggage is left behind, maybe that's going to be a bit of a help for Sam Dyson. Having said all that, I don't know that I'd be real super eager to assume that Sam Dyson's going to get a ton of saves.
3: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, but the the good thing about Sam Dyson, if you look at, uh, if you look at his overall line for the year, uh, 17 strikeouts, 15 walks, 3 BPV. and then you look at the last month, 11 strikeouts, only three walks of 164 BPV. So he has turned some things around that are not not reflecting at all, of course in his overall line uh, because those, those quick turnarounds don't. But I agree with you, Sam Dyson is probably not going to get a ton of saves just because there're not a ton of saves to be had in San Francisco. Uh, So I'm not sure I'd jump on Sam Dyson in terms of picking him up right away.
0: On the other hand, if five saves could get you three points in the category, it might be worth grabbing him just for that. Uh, They also called up a rookie, Dan Slania. Jeremy Deloney covered him in daily call-ups. And Nick, I can just tell you, uh, he's one win in 10 decisions at AAA, 644 ERA and 166 whip. I don't know, uh, they say he's got the stuff, maybe they can turn him into a starter, I think he's just a roster filler for now, and uh, maybe at six five two seventy five, they can always trade him to the 49ers and start him at tackle or something.
3: Uh, if you were, given his minor league record, if you were a manager, would you be anxious to put him in there in the ninth inning?
0: I certainly would not, no, and uh, finally, Nick, Baseball HQ co-general manager Brent Hershey writes the speculator column now and again, and this week he looked at the 2017 rookie class and speculated on the future's. of. Some of the rookie players that we've been watching this year. Let's start with what Brent says about Tyler Glasnow, the starting pitcher in Pittsburgh.
3: We all get uh, really enamored of rookies and look at their, at their production, and then uh, sometimes we need a reality check to see uh, is this guy going to, uh, going to do this again next year or for the second half of this year or what is it we're really looking at? Poor Tyler Glasnow. It was a lot of people were really excited when he came out of the, uh, made it uh, onto the team out of camp, but. Uh, uh, he had doing well in strikeouts, struck out 28 batters in 17 uh, in the third innings, but allowed 12 earned runs and 25 hits and uh, really had uh, control challenges, had them all the way through the minors, uh, had to, had them in the majors, uh, 56% first strike rate, uh, 8% swinging strike. So the guy has good stuff, but uh, there wasn't much hope for a turnaround right now. and They're sending him back to the minors to see if they can get him straightened out. But really right now a two-pitch guy uh brent says and, and that's not going to do it as a major league starter uh getting big strikeout rates if he can get the ball over the plate
0: yeah keep getting and keeping the ball over the plate is uh, often a sticking point for young pitchers a uh, lot of talent there nick tyler glass now is one of those kind of guys again a lot of it depends on your team context if you have time to wait maybe you're a keeper league and you can reserve him or a dynasty league and you can reserve him or if you have some kind of format where you can just grab him and and use him in spot starts and good matchups, maybe. I don't know. Uh, Right now, if I was competing, I don't know. I'd be relying on Tyler Glasnow a lot. Uh, Brent also noted the spectacular start of Los Angeles first baseman Cody Bellinger. Boy, this is a story, but is it as good as it looks to me?
3: It's one of those interesting things that certainly you you look at it and you say, wait a minute, what the heck? Uh, Is this guy the second coming of Babe Ruth or what's going on? But, uh, you know, I, 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 like, really like what, what Brent had to say. And it's the kind of thing that, that makes us kind of, uh, uh, pause and think about where Cody Bellinger should be. And I'm, I'm just going to read Brent's, Brent's comment here because it's a good one. He said, our heads know this pace can't continue, but our hearts still wonder if this is a generational bat, uh, especially since he's 21 years old. Um, and it says, especially, uh, for reference, we recall Gary Sanchez's final two months of 2016, how he started 2017. Um, certainly the power, Brent says, is real. Uh, he's come back to earth a little bit already after 20 home runs in just two months. Um, we, su- Brent su- suggests that Bellinger is likely to back up some, but this is a guy who within the next couple of years could be a top fantasy player at his position. Uh, and I even wonder if he may not be one of the top uh, players in our, in our draft overall, uh, when he gets to be 23, 24 years old.
0: Might happen even sooner than that, uh, 24 home runs and 228 at-bats. If you prorate pro it, it's just uh, unreal, and of course, unreality is the problem here that we just can't expect him to maintain that. As Brent suggests, when you look at his weekly rates, uh, he started off with a uh, 12-RBI uh, uh, week, a three-home run week early in his uh, going, he's only had one week where he didn't hit a home run. So there's something to be said for consistency. But uh, that six home run week back in uh, in early June, that kind of thing just doesn't tend to happen a lot. So we're going to have to temper our expectations. But I think one of the most interesting thing that's going to happen over the next maybe five years. Is watching the competition for best player in the league. I would have even maybe included Trey Turner up until this injury, but we have Aaron Judge, we have Mike Trout, we have Bryce Harper, and now we have this Cody Bellinger kid. They're all in their early twenties and they're all well established in the major leagues already. Boy, this is going to be some next few years in Major League Baseball.
3: It sure is. We're going to see some some real turnover in who the best players are, and you've got uh, you just named uh, the ones who will really be competing for that uh, that top spot in our draft.
0: And, of course, Mookie Betts, and there's a couple of other guys as well who are pretty consistent and pretty young as well. Uh, Nick, thanks a million for helping us out. We'll uh, catch up with you again covering the National League here at Baseball HQ Radio next week. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now we move over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio.
4: Hi, PD. Thanks for having me, as always.
0: Last week, we talked quite a bit about the rebuilding Oakland A's, and this week, uh, we're going to talk a lot about the contending New York Yankees, who led the American League in notable transactions, but unfortunately, almost all the moves were related to injuries. The Yanks are losing not only their starting players, but now also their replacements.
4: Yeah, it's, uh, the Yankees have just been a, a disaster for the last week to 10 days. You know, the casual fan looking at their Thursday lineup wouldn't recognize those last four names. They had Dustin Fowler in right field. They had Rob Refsnyder, uh Well, uh, he, Rob Refsnyder replaced him. We'll get into that. Uh, at first base, they had Austin Romine, a catcher. They had uh, newcomer Tyler Wade at second. And then at third base, uh, Ronald Torres, pretty unusual for a contender, and of course, they were beaten by James Shields and the White Sox on Thursday
0: and just to be beaten by James Shields in general is not a a ringing endorsement but let's get into the details about this amazing slash terrible week the Yankees have had and let's start with Aaron Hicks he was having a terrific season so far after he replaced Jacoby Ellsbury now he's on the DL with a strained oblique those are always bad news Uh, how are the Yankees going to replace Aaron Hicks Well, they
4: brought back Ellsbury from the DL, where he'd been since late May, dealing with that concussion, uh, and to help uh, Ellsbury (laughs) ease back in and play the depth matchup defense role that the Yankees had when everyone was healthy, they called up uh, a prospect, Dustin Fowler, who'd been having a pretty good year in AAA. He hurt himself last night, Thursday, trying to make a catch in foul ground when he ran into the right field wall. He exited before he even got his first major league at bat, and now he's undergoing surgery for a rupture of the right patella tendon. No timetable for his return, but likely out, or at least realistically out for the remainder of the season. So now we'll wait to see what the Yankees do here. Uh, Ref Snyder replaced Fowler in right field, as I said. He could see more time than expected over the near term.
0: At the same time, second baseman Starlin Castro is also out. He has a combination, a hamstring strain and a sore right wrist. He got a cortisone shot for the uh, wrist, I think, uh, earlier this week. Matt Dodge has been covering the story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Castro, like Aaron Hicks, was playing very well. 8.35 OPS, 52 runs scored. It's going to be a tough act to follow.
4: Yeah, kind of. I mean, the underlying skills are actually a near-mirror a near image of uh, 2016 when he hit 40 points less and his OPS was 100 points less. This thing is is a bit of a hit-rate hit mirage right now, um, despite a, a lower-line drive rate and no big gains in hard contact this year. So he was probably due for uh, some regression, uh, but but Castro's still a pretty big loss for the Yankees. He's an experienced veteran.
0: When I looked at Castro earlier, not related to this uh, conversation that we're having of course you notice that 36 percent hit rate which is well above his lifetime average I think around 29 30 pretty typical hit rate for a for a batter and all of a sudden this year it's up around 36 and then as you said the next thing you do is you go and check is he hitting more line drives or is he hitting the ball more consistently with uh, good velocity good hard contact and none of that is true it's just that six percent more of his balls in play happen to be landing where they ain't as we we, Willie Keeler once said so uh, Castro might have been due for that downward correction but i guess for now we won't know who does matt dodge suggest is going to get the playing time in castro's second base spot
4: well this is where it gets a little interesting for fantasy owners second base is probably going to cover it in the near term by ron torres uh for for part of the time but the player to target is tyler wade who was called up from uh from triple to replace uh, uh, Castro. He made a really good impression in spring training. He had an OPS of uh, 852, a couple of steals. He's being groomed to be a utility man, and he's got terrific speed. He stole 24 bases in 28 attempts in AAA this year. Um, Matt Dodge, as you noted, covered this, and he thinks Wade has the hitting skills, uh, 11% walk rate, 80% contact rate, to tilt that playing time in his favor uh, if he has some early success.
0: Now, you did mention that speed, 24 stolen bases in 28 attempts at a but it's definitely more speed than power here, right?
4: Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I'll tell you what, uh, Wade has been impressing a lot of people, not just Matt. Uh, interesting. Uh, he, some people think even his pop is starting to come around just a little bit. But, yeah, he's not going to be a big home run hitter.
0: And he does have the kind of skills, Nick Richards covered it uh, for the Baseball HQ scouting team in the call-ups report, and he mentioned uh, Wade can get on base, he has the good speed, and he's a solid defensive player, a typical utility player. The team could use something like that on the bench, even if Castro comes back and he doesn't, uh, that is, if Wade doesn't end up with a starting place in the lineup, he could stick.
4: Yeah, well, if you think about what's happening to the Yankees right now, they've got Castro injured at second base, and they have two, two big outfield injuries right now. So, of course, Wade has played uh, two games in the outfield, started once at second base. This is a guy who could win a bunch of playing time in the next couple of weeks if he performs.
0: And after that, who knows? Uh, Also, we have to talk about first base because that position has turned over a few times in the last week or so. Uh, First, Matt Dodge noted the Yanks DFA'd Chris Carter and brought up Tyler Austin from the minors. Uh, In a year when the ball was really flying out of ballparks, it hasn't been for Chris Carter. Eight home runs and 167 at-bats and a 204 batting average. Pretty tough to take if you're uh, the Yankees trying to get to the playoffs.
4: Yeah, you would think the one thing you could depend on Chris Carter for would be home runs, particularly in a year where everybody's hitting home runs. Uh, he was actually having a better month in June. He was hitting 231, which for Chris is, is pretty good, and four home runs over 65 at bats. But his defense at first base was also pretty bad, uh, along with the sketchy overall offense. Uh, as, Matt, uh, as Matt Dodge noted, uh, part of this had to do with a really well timed hot streak by Tyler Austin in AAA. He'd posted a 986 OPS in June through 82 at bats. It looked like Austin was going to be the first baseman until uh, Greg Bird got healthy. And, of course, Bird just suffered a, a- uh, setback in his return from ankle issues. Why not? He's a Yankee. Um, he's now on the 60-day DL with no projected return rate uh, date. And now Austin's luck hasn't been any better. Just three games into his four games into the promotion, he strains a hamstring, lands on the 10-day DL. So it doesn't sound like he's going to return immediately at the end of his stint either.
0: Uh, with Lou Gehrig not available, who's going to be playing <laughs> first base for the Yankees?
4: Well, on Thursday, like I said, it was backup catcher Austin Romine, who's 236 BA and uh, two homers aren't going to be much help to the Yankees or fantasy owners. So essentially the Yankees look like they're back to square one. They've recalled Chris Carter who cleared waivers uh, and and is now returning to New York. Uh, 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 The Yankees are the kind of team they have got a deep organization. I think you're going to see some moves here depending on what the injury outlook is in another week or two. Um, It's going to be interesting to watch.
0: Yeah, it is. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was listening to a Yankee game the other night, and uh, the radio broadcast, they said uh, they were talking about rumors that Eric Hosmer of Kansas City might be headed to the Bronx. to be a good fit for them if Kansas City decides they're rebuilding. Of course, in the American League, nobody claims to be rebuilding because they're all within three or four games of that second wildcard spot. Also, uh, Joe Girardi said he's now officially concerned that Greg Bird's continued knee and ankle problems could cause him to miss the entire rest of this season and maybe to next no official pronouncement yet but that's something to keep in mind when you're trying to assess who's going to be playing first base over there jock is that all the injury news we have for the yankees
4: no no but but wait there's more um the organ uh, also took a hit they lost uh uber prospect uh, glaber torres for the season to tommy john surgery some people actually thought torres might be able to help the team down the stretch but that's not going to happen now
0: and Torres is the guy, of course, the big prospect they got in the Chicago Cubs deal when they sent uh, Aroldis Chapman as a rental to the Cubs for that World Series run. A jock I noticed in the Daily Call-Ups report as well. The Yankees have another interesting debut. Third baseman Miguel Andujar, he's a pretty good prospect. Came up for a single game, went three for four, drove in four runs. Sounds like the kind of start that would get you a second try, and they sent him right back to A. So... Leaving that aside, they've had a lot of injuries. Is there any chance we see him coming back?
4: I'm not sure I understand the one-and-done prospect here with uh, Andahar. Obviously, they planned that before he went three for four and drove in four runs. That was quite a one-and-done for a rookie. Uh, He's obviously not this polished yet. Uh, Chase Headley's still the primary third baseman. And he actually had his best month in June, a 303 batting average, with just one home run. And that's how it's gone all season for Headley. He's got four homers for the year, and he's even lost some at-bats to uh, utility Ronald Torres. Uh, uh, Headley is just miserable against lefties right now. You would have to think that the Yankees would l- also like to get more production out of third base. So maybe this was a, cross, uh, a shot across uh, Headley's bow.
0: And, of course, speaking of the Royals, uh, Mike Mustakas a free agent at the end of the year. Could it be uh, Hosmer and Mustakas making their way to New York for a package of prospects? Of course, uh, one of them is not going to be Gleyber Torres, we wouldn't expect. Uh, moving on to other teams, finally, Tampa Bay kicked off the trading season in Major League Baseball. They acquired shortstop Anani Hecheveria from Miami, gave back some minor league talent of not much repute. Uh, Hecheveria steps right in as the Rays' new shortstop. Going to be some ripple effects going on there.
4: Yeah, the uh, the Rays improved their shortstop defense and moved Tim Beckham over to second base. They shipped Daniel Robertson back to Triple A Durham. Hatcherberry isn't isn't awful in an empty batting average kind of way. He, he slumped to two thirty six in 2016, but he'd hit over two seventy five for two consecutive seasons and over a thousand at bats. So he's got that going for him. He's hitting two ninety six this year. No speed or power to speak of.
0: So he is kind of awful in an empty batting average kind of way.
4: <laughs> yeah, well, if if you're just looking at it from an empty batting average standpoint, if that's what you're looking for, he might be able to help you.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, uh, an empty batting average is better than an empty bad batting average, at least. He's he's not killing you while he's in there. In an American League-only format, uh, he might be rosterable as an injury replacement or something like that. I can't see him playing in any kind of shallow mixed format. A mixed 15, there's no room for a guy like uh, Danny Hechevarria, is there? Nope, nope, not at all. Tampa also activated Wilson Ramos for the first time. He had ACL surgery back last year after the World Series or right around the World Series. He's back a little earlier than they anticipated. Once again, Matt Dodge covering this for Baseball HQ and playing time today. And this is an interesting story, Jock, because Ramos replaces Derek Norris, who had nine home runs, not too shabby.
4: Yeah, the nine home runs were a plus but but he also had a crummy two two oh one batting average and as Matt notes, uh some pretty lousy defense. Uh he led the, the he was leading AL catchers in errors and pass balls while only throwing out eight stealers in in forty one attempts. Uh I think uh, Tampa Bay is looking for defense up the middle, which is why they made these two moves. Um their offense has to me has been surprisingly good this year. I'm not sure they're gonna miss Norris uh um that much. Uh Ramos was, was good last year. I I think he out hit um, his, his real skills. He hit 307. Uh, he actually had a 307, 354, 496 slash line. Now that I'm looking at it, uh, on the other hand, uh, he's a he's a big ground ball hitter. He had some luck last year, and I think the reality of surgical uh, the surgical procedure is going to slow him down a little bit over these uh, next three months. I would I would temper my expectations just a little bit with Ramos.
0: I would too, but at the same time, he's, he's going to be probably at least as useful as a power hitter as, as Norris was, and he could add 100 points of batting average.
4: Yeah, I actually think he's going to be better uh, better in batting average as Norris was. He's always been a pretty decent 260 hitter, and, uh, and he should he should definitely outpace Norris there.
0: Blake Snell also got recalled. He's back in the rotation for Tampa, so who's going to lose the playing time in the Tampa rotation?
4: Well, Erasmo Ramirez got put back in the bullpen, probably where he belongs, given his recent struggles. He's really, uh he's really not that great a starting pitcher. Uh, he 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 offers some things, but. Uh more of a bullpen guy, and I think Snell owners are the losers too, because he looks like the same guy who was sent to AAA his first start back. Uh, a whole bunch of walks uh, was taken out before he hit the sixth inning. Uh, made too many pitches, uh, and, and couldn't hold, uh, couldn't hold uh, the the opposition to, to less than three or four runs. So uh, uh, he he's got great stuff. I've watched him. Um, his stuff is so good that umpires miss calls on him regularly, but uh, he still really just has no way of commanding it and putting in the strike zone consistently enough.
0: Yeah, I've seen him pitched as well and that's the that's the impression I left uh, with I think that if he can get the control at all down, uh, he's going to struggle with that umpire issue, as you mentioned. But if he can just cut the walks by half, he could be a really effective pitcher. But in the meantime, I don't think so. In Kansas City, the Royals recalled Jorge Soler, who was really killing it at AAA. He's now DHing in Kansas City in place of Brandon Moss, who has really been struggling.
4: Yeah, Soler really was killing it. He was 30 for 87, nine homers, 20 walks. He's going to play DH where I think he belongs in place of Moss and uh, and that 179 batting average uh, Moss is carrying. I I personally think that they should also start sitting Alex Gordon, but, of course, he's a Kansas City institution. Uh, Gordon has been just as lousy as Moss has been. Of course, he's a better fielder than Moss in left field, so that's part of his allure. I, I've watched uh, Soler back in his first two games. He's really hit the ball hard and, and just one for eight to show for it. I still love his upside. That's a hill I'm going to die on. He's still just 25 years old. I think he's going to break through eventually. He has to stay healthy. Uh, I think fantasy owners want to be holding him when he does break through.
0: I was going to say about Alex Gordon, he's really having a terrible year. He's on my tout team and he's killing me, but he is a a plus defensive outfielder and it's not like they have a lot of choices in that regard. I'm not worried about Alex Gordon's playing time. Between his defense and his status as a uh, demigod in Kansas City, I think he's going to be okay, but especially for a rebuilding team, they got no reason to make a move on him. Finally, Carlos Rodon, the left-hander for the White Sox, has finally returned to the club from an upper biceps bursitis problem. He made his first start on Wednesday night. Wasn't a great outing jock. Five innings, gave up three runs, not none of them earned because of an error. Just two hits, but listen to this. Five innings, six walks. Walks were always a problem for Carlos Rodon, so what can we expect from him over the remainder of the season?
4: Yeah, walks and pitch count. Uh, this was really a shame about what happened to Rodon this year because I thought he was uh, showing some growth signs, some small ones last year. And, and if you look at this first start and what he did in the minors, he, he walked nine in 17 innings. I have a feeling he's going to struggle to reacclimate himself a little bit. It's a guy with a lot of talent. Uh, uh, but he's again, he's always struggled with control. Um, just based on the one game, it looks like his velocity is back. And he has enough stuff to avoid uh, inflicting a lot of pain on fantasy owners. But when you think about the team he's on, it's going to be rebuilding and auditioning in the second half. Uh, this just isn't a place to look for a breakout over the next three-plus months. Uh, he replaces David Holmberg in the rotation. No great shakes there. I, I still like Radon longer term. I just have questions what he's going to do over this uh, next half year.
0: In a lot of leagues, Carlos Rodon is going to be uh, bandied around on the trade wire, people hoping that uh, that other owners in their leagues remember Carlos Rodon's reputation coming into the season and maybe trying to cut bait on the injury risk uh, now that he's back. If you were in such a league, how much would you be willing to give up to get Carlos Rodon, assuming it's not a keeper format?
4: Yeah, boy, that's that's a good question. I mean, the, the problem with pitching is uh, it's, you know, it just, it's just struggles. Uh, you know, it, it, almost, it, it, it almost depends on how desperate you are you know, for pitching. Obviously, if he's if he's the big name out there, and you're in a and you're and you're a pitcher away, you got to go for it. But uh, other than that, I would I would temper my bid right now. Uh, I I don't know. You tell me. What do you think?
0: Uh, I'm I'm with you. I think if you need strikeouts, you could do worse. As a speculative play to grab Rodon and cross your fingers. But overall, it is a very risky play. If I was defending a first or second place position, I don't think so.
4: Yeah, no, that's, that's kind of my take as well, and it's a real good point on the strikeouts. He's, he's struck out over nine batters uh, for nine innings in his uh, Major League career, and he's certainly got that going for him.
0: Okay, Jock, thanks very much for helping us out. I know you had to get up real early this morning to do the segment. I do appreciate you taking that effort. Uh, you're off to a little vacation here, so have fun then. We'll talk to you again when you get back.
4: I will. Thanks, PD. See you in a couple weeks.
0: Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, also a Speculator columnist, does some other writing for the site as well. And, of course, he covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, it's our expert interview, talking with Todd Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio.
3: And this crowd just trading board at every pitch. Here it comes. A three on it. Two strikes, ball one to Dale Mitchell. Listen, to this crowd. Guarantee that nobody, but nobody Has left this ballpark And if somebody did manage to leave early Man, he's missing The greatest Two strikes and the ball Mitchell Waiting, stands deep, feet close together Larson is ready Gets the sign Two strikes, ball one, here comes the pitch Strike three, a no-hitter of perfect game
2: for John Larson Baseball HQ Radio
0: Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, a frequent guest on the show. And Todd, it's great to have you back on Baseball HQ Radio.
5: Glad to be back. The uh, the last podcast of June. Can you believe it's halfway through already?
0: I know. We just passed the 81 game mark for quite a few teams in, within the last day or two. We'll certainly be past that by the time the weekend is over and into the second half, although a lot of people still call the post-All-Star period the second half. It's more like the second... I don't know two fifths or something like that, or or uh, I don't know four twentieths or whatever the whatever the math works out to be. Um, you told me before the call that your teams in your various experts leagues and NFBC and stuff are pretty consistently struggling, and I assume you're looking at what's gone on. Uh, what are you learning from your uh, in-season assessment of your of your squads?
5: Yeah, it, it hasn't been a great year. You know, the, the last year was a, a particularly good year for me. This year is just not the not good. And you know, I'm looking to see. I mean, actually, I have a, I had a sense. I mean, I know, I knew going in, not so much going in, but before I really looked at the teams, I'm not. It's not injuries. I have one or two teams that I you know I you know I, no one wants to blame injuries, but I can blame injuries. But I I did not do a good job of assembling teams this year. A lot of it was mis-evaluation of pitching and I don't know if it's good to diversify or to go with the guys that you like because when you hit the guys you like you do well which is what happened the previous year but I've just been been wrong on a lot of pitching and that kind of I kind of start with pitching and work backwards so if my pitching doesn't come through I'm kind of in trouble and this is not the year to want to correct pitching in season it's just not there besides the fact that it's just so hard to figure out what's going on with the home runs and the strikeouts to be able to figure out who to who to get and who not to get so it was just the wrong year for me to be you know wrong on Jared Eickhoff and be wrong on I, I guess Fultonevich. I want to say I'm wrong on him but Zach Davies and and some of these other guys it was just the wrong year to, to have a bad year with picking pitching was there any common denominator amongst the pitching mistakes I think well the common denominator and this is probably throughout the league anybody it's just the it, home runs are just so weird this year, and I know there was a an article today in USA Today that came out about the juice ball, and we, we know about the uppercut swing and, and all those sorts of things. It's uh, I was I when I where I was wrong my, the pitchers I was wrong on are giving up more homers than, than I expected, and whether I should have seen that in the numbers, or whether it's just because the new the new environment we just don't know. How to judge homers we don't know how our expected era's equations should be regressing homers in this new environment it, i think is, is part of it so it's just gonna it's gonna be a trip for me in the off season or trick or actually both a trip and a trick in the off season to try to reassess my 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 system and how I'm gonna handle some of these pitchers that had bad two thousand and seventeens mainly because of homers. You know, then the flip side, I'm not on a guy like Jason Vargas, but for whatever reason, he's been avoiding homers. And right now, it's always good to avoid homers. But this year, because more runs are scored as a as a result of a home run than ever, avoiding homers is more important than ever on a relative basis if you, the, you make a pie of what's important the the avoiding home run slice got bigger so uh that that's that's sort of where i'm at you know in, injuries obviously have paid have have mattered but i don't think there's a, a you know I don't, I don't think there's anything you can change there was no way to know you know some of these injuries you know even even trey turner getting plunked in the wrist there's just no way to know these things so i'm not gonna Change my ideas methodologies because of injuries, but I do think we need to reevaluate what's going on with the uh, with this new fly ball uh, and this fact that there's no shame in striking out anymore. So I, I think that's changed the mentality of hitters and uh, the con- not converse, but the the effect being, home runs are not going up linearly amongst all pitchers. Some pitchers, Parcello and Tanaka, are giving up more relative to what they normally give up than, than, than some pitchers.
0: Well, our mutual friend Joe Sheehan uh, in his most recent newsletter talked about the home run boom and he pointed out that it's going to be somewhat dangerous to make adjustments to our expectations of pitchers about the juiced ball because, you know, it wasn't juiced in the first half last year and it was juiced in the second half last year and so far it's been juiced in the first half this year, but he said, you know, what happens if the next shipment of balls in, in from the factory in Costa Rica they've made the adjustments maybe they've re-raised the seams or they've made the circumference a little bigger like maybe they've countered all these things that have been going on I suspect not because I think Major League Baseball likes home runs because casual fans like home runs but boy it's going to be really difficult to do that home run assessment on pitchers next year because we really can't expect 100% that the ball effect will continue and we don't even really
5: know what it is right and 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 uh... I believe I may I may be misspeaking here. I don't know. I don't think Major League sent a directive to, to lower the seams and this and that. And as a as a scientist, I know that uh, a product can can there's a, not so much a wide range, but there's a range of specs. So the balls could still fall within spec, and the you know the the balls manufactured the last couple years or half year or, or batches may fall within the spec, but they may be a little bit harder. The seams may be a little bit lower than the previous batches, but they're still all within spec. And here's the part that I that I mentioned, not sure I'm misspeaking. Now you mentioned Costa Rica. I, I thought that, even though there may not have been a directive, I thought that they changed factories around the time that the ball started to get changed. You know, you, you move to a new factory, that happens all the time. So it may not have been something conscious but it just may have been an artifact of of changing factories and equipment and workers or whatever that might be so i mean I, again i don't think major league went out and said this but i think you may be right i don't think they're running to change it either the thing with this the the, the, the thing that caught my attention with the usa today article that came out I think it was bob nightingale was the was the, the lower seams that that seems to me to be you know we, we we talk about uh you know the the elasticity and that sort of stuff but but lower seams seems to be you know, probably a more important aspect of the whole of the whole thing than than anything else. If that's the case, you just you don't get the you don't get the spin, you don't get the grip. It's it's it's, it's a different ball. If the seams heights are different, it's like you throwing com- a completely different ball. So that, that I caught that that caught my eye uh, more than anything uh, in the article that I just read was the uh, was the lower seams that pitchers are noticing.
0: The pitchers are noticing that. I've been hearing uh, some discussion of that on the ball games when I listen to them on the radio or watch them on TV. It's starting to come out that the pitchers are being asked, why are you giving up so many home runs? And they are starting to blame the ball. And they, and a few of them that I've heard being talked about are saying, I I can feel that the seams are lower. And the lowered seams ha- have two effects, it seems to me. And I talked about this last week when I was talking about the, the uh, effect of the ball and The first effect is when the ball is traveling through uh, the batted ball is traveling through the air towards the seats. Lower seams mean less air resistance, which means it'll Mm -hmm. a given ball given a hit uh, with a given amount of angle and launch and velocity is going to travel farther with lower seams. The other aspect of it, which I don't hear talked about a lot, is that breaking pitches thrown are going to break less because the seams play a role in that. Too. And so a pitcher who's been used to getting a pretty sharp break on his slider, it's going to be hanging up in the zone a little more often. His curveballs aren't going to have that nice 12 to six drop as much as they used to. They're going to stay up in the where the batter can get a good chunk of it in the strike zone. All of these kind of things combined. And then the what they call the coefficient of restitution, the hardness of the ball. Basically, it's, its resilience when it's hit is up. The circumference of the ball is smaller, which makes it travel farther. And you're right. These uh, effects all coincide with the move uh, in the manufacturing facility from Haiti, I believe, to Costa Rica. And it does appear to be an artifact of that. And I don't I don't think Major League Baseball ordered this change either. But I, like I said, and like you just agreed, I think they're not in any hurry to fix it.
5: Yeah, I'll give you a third, and again, this is more you know uh, speculation. But another, you know, with the seams, t- seems to me when you actually contact the ball, if the seams are higher, you're you're catching some of the seams. It's absorbing the blow, so to speak, on a higher seam. Whether how a big how big a difference that makes, I don't know. But it's possible. I mean, it, you know, you kind of dumb luck where you actually hit the ball with respect to where the seams are spinning at the time if you catch more of a high seam it can kind of you know i would guess you know absorb the blow before you get to the actual meat of the ball
0: well when i read the article that uh inspired me to, to do a master notes about this, and I've been following this juice ball theory for years. I had a guy on, I don't remember his name, but he was talking about the eras of baseball where the ball was certainly livelier than in other eras, and he says right. it's been going on throughout the history of the game, but the most recent one I read was Ben Lindbergh and Mitchell Lickman, both very well-known analysts, and they, they did a very exhaustive study of this, and they said right uh, up front, it's not just the ball, and it's not just one thing about the ball. The added home runs are the result of a a lot of small differences compounding and adding up. Now the ball is right. a big part of it, but also the the uh, the thing you mentioned about hitters changing their approach, going for a more uppercut type swing changing the kind of balls they like to swing at, being more patient in the case of a guy like uh, Justin Smoke. Uh, There's lots of things that are contributing to this general rise, but definitely it's a factor. And as I said, I think the problem is going to be when we start thinking about it next year, how certain are we that the ball is going to remain like this? I guess we'll see in spring training to a certain extent, although I'm not 100% sure they use the same balls.
5: Right. Or the other thing being, um, I don't think they, you, I was, I figured who I was talking to about this. Uh, may have been, uh, may have been my, uh, Roto-Wire colleague, Derek Van Riper. Um, it seems to I me, mean, if, if a ball has a hint of dust on it, they seem to throw it out of the game now. Remember back, you know, back in the day, you know, I think you've actually talked about used to umpire, I used to umpire used to, you know, the pitcher would not like the ball. He'd flip it to the umpire. Now, now they throw it to the dugout. The umpire used to throw it back in his bag and basically give that same ball back to the pitcher. I sometimes wonder if they didn't even take the ball out of his hand, you know, if they just put it in the bag and lift his hand out and threw the pitcher the same ball just to say, you know, I'm the, you know, I'm the boss here. But now, I mean, if if a pitch if a pitch hits the dirt, uh, the catcher flips it away and the umpire throws a new ball. I mean, what I'm saying in spring training, I don't know that they do that. And we've all played softball. And, you know, there's definite difference between a, a, a ball hit in the first inning off a fresh ball and a ball hit in the third or fourth after that thing's been pounded around a bit. So uh, I just, uh, anyway, but the point being, uh, I, 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 whether we know in spring or not, I don't know. But, you um, know, I, I think that the whole, my, my theory is that there's a couple different kinds of fly balls. And now this is the elasticity aside. Um, if you you hit a fly ball because you, you hit underneath a ball on a higher pitch, and you hit a fly ball because you square up a lower pitch with an elevated swing and your swings on the same plane as the ball, transferring the maximum energy because, you know, the ball's coming down your swings going up. Those are two different types of fly balls. And I think what's, I mean, there's always been those two different types because there's always been elevated swings, but there's more of them. So I think the ratio between those two fly balls is changing. So I think that any, Equation or what thought process we had using fly ball in in it the 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 fly ball itself the is not the it's changing the cat the characteristics and you know as long as it was consistent previously whatever equation we had they would kind of flesh that out but since it's no longer consistent there's more of these harder hit fly balls I think that we have to rethink our expected ERAs and all that sort of stuff and our xFIPs and 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 anything that anything that regresses home run per fly ball.
0: Well, I've been saying this that for uh, this whole year that I just don't understand why our home run per fly ball ratio includes pop-ups and soft cans of corn. I think that the ratio, if you're trying to assess how much luck is involved in a pitcher's home run totals or a hitter's home run totals for that matter should be based entirely on how many home runs is he getting per hard hit fly ball not, and and leave out the other kinds of fly balls because they can't be home runs. And there should be, a and in fact, it turns out there is a relatively stable 30% rate on hard hit fly balls. But the rate of just f- of fly balls in general, as far as home runs, is more like 10%. But some pitchers give up more hard hit fly balls than others, and their home run per fly ball rate looks weird. It looks like it's out of the norm and should regress. But the fact is, it isn't out of the norm. It's perfectly in the norm, because if you only account for the hard hit fly balls, then that, it makes a lot more sense. They're get, giving up more hard hit fly balls, therefore they're giving up more home runs.
5: Right, and I think that's that's you know, sort of where I was thinking about off-season. That's the data point. That's what I want to use when I when I when I st- when I figure out my home run projection for pitchers. I want to know how many hard hit fly balls. And part of the problem, as you know, is it wasn't you know how do you quantify that? You know, is someone up in a booth trying to figure that out? Now, what we have the data, or at least we can, you know, we're still objectively, sub- subjectively Putting the limits to it but it looks just being electronically measured but then you get into that point you know so if it's uh at at what launch angle and at what exit velocity is considered hard so you're gonna get a picture that's like a you know a little bit out of that boundary and still giving up homers i mean there's so there's still going to be some human element to the determination but it's still getting us closer to be able to figure it out i mean i'll be willing to bet that the reason why Rick Parcello and Masahiro Tanaka are giving up more home runs is because they're giving up more hard hit fly balls than they have in the past, and it might just because they work low on the zone, and pitchers are now hitters are now uppercutting their low their, the, the pitches before the, the pitches before that were being topped and grounded out are now being elevated and sent out of the yard. So I think there's some pitchers that uh, just just due to their just due to their natural style are being affected more than others.
0: Yeah, with regard to Porcello, I had him last year, and I auctioned for him this year in Tout American League, and he has been very uh, much a less lesser pitcher. And they were talking about it on the broadcast when I was watching a start the other night, and they said he was he was he was complaining, or. Commenting, I guess, I shouldn't say he was complaining, it makes him sound bad, but he was commenting that his sinker isn't sinking quite as much as it used to. And it used to also have a bit of run away from the right handed hitters. And he used to get ground balls with it, and now they're hitting it. And that too could be a function of the change in the height of the seams because the sinking action and the side-to-side action all those things are a function of of the airflow over the ball and the right. higher the seams are the more that airflow can take effect and if it's not if the seams are lower then there's less effect and it's going to be guys like Tanaka guys like Rick Porcello as you say who figure to uh who figure to suffer the most and uh, when we try to figure that out or how we try to figure that out is going to be a real challenge. And I also agree with what you said about if even when we have the mile per hour off the bat data and the launch angle data, there's still going to be a certain categorization problem in that if we say okay 90 miles an hour is a hard hit ball then you say okay so 89.8 isn't you know (laughs) you know 90.1 is and 89.9 isn't so for two tenths of a mile an hour we're going to relegate one to being a medium hit fly ball and the other one gets to be hard i think there's going to be more uh, a more mathematical and numerically valid way of doing that uh, but we're going to have to have to have access to the entire database which currently we don't or at least i don't
5: no, I don't either. And you know, as much as we know, you know, I mean, I'm not going to I'm not going to say it, it's a it's a generational thing, but you know, neither of us in our, you know, college and or in your case university days learned how to scrape the internet like some of these kids can do. Not that I couldn't or you couldn't learn how and I'm sure you probably n- can do it better than I, but uh, it's just not in my arsenal is to uh, you know, go into the dark webs and scrape data that you can't normally get. Well,
0: Well, I think in part it's because, well, uh, I know the data exists because if you go to baseballsavant.com, for instance, you can find the hard hit ball data for any particular pitcher on every particular batted ball for that pitcher, ditto for hitters. But what you can't do is get all the pitchers and all of their batted balls in one database so that you can start um, ranking them and start looking for patterns in the hard hitness and the home run results and so forth. It's all pretty interesting and it's Going to get more interesting as we move forward. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David, with Todd Zola from Masters Ball and rotowire and ESPN. And uh, Todd, you write a weekly column at Masters Ball called You Look Fabulous, F A A B, analyzing the fab activity in the tout wars and labor experts leagues. And I thought you made an interesting comment at the end of your most recent tout analysis when you wrote, Six different owners bid on three starting pitchers, but only one of the owners bid on more than one of the pitchers, and it's just another reminder we all see things differently. I thought this was really interesting, not because of the pitchers involved, that doesn't matter, but the note that not all owners think alike, because I think that has some real important effects on how we should shape our tactics, not just in fab bidding, but in auction planning and, and in auction action. <laughs> auction action what do you think some of the effects are of the fact that not all owners think alike
5: yeah i can actually i can think of three and i've written about these and i think we've probably talked about them but mayb- maybe not necessarily in this exact uh manner i think the uh one of them is uh, in trades where and i've talked about this a ton my favorite tactic is offering choices and you know i could say i you know give me smith i'll give you jones and it might be a fair trade but there may be another guy on my roster that you like more than the guy I'm offering, and I like less, and vice versa. You know, there may be another guy on your roster I like more, but I'm kind of I propose a trade that I think will get accepted. Whereas if I gave us, if he gave you a choice of, you know, I'll trade you one of these three guys for one of your three guys, you know, by making the by by setting the boundaries, I'm okay with whatever you choose. But there's a there's a chance you choose the guy that I like the most to give me and the choice, a guy that I like the least to get back. I don't know what you're thinking. So that's one, that's one repercussion. Um, another is, and, and one of the, this is more, uh, uh, maybe a little bit granular, but sometimes it's the style of pitchers. These guys are bidding on in that uh, somebody may, especially this season, and we're at the point of the season, you need to do this where you may be, you know, throw an ERA and whip out the window and just going for wins and Ks or the vice versa. You may be, Forgetting about wins and Ks and just trying to protect your ratios. So if you if you, if you you look at, see, you know, who who these guys are bidding on, and if you can figure out their strategy, you may have a player in your team that feeds into their strategy. And there's nothing better than making a trade offer that's intelligent by saying, uh, you know, lo- look, looks like you're trying to protect your ratios on your fab bids. I got Chris Davinsky on my bench. I just can't find a place for him. What do you want? You know, you're interested in Chris Davinsky, something like that. Um, so then that, that, that to me, you know, shaping trade offers and then generally, I know we've talked about this in different ways in that you, you mentioned the auctions, we all think of things differently. One, we, one, you know, I hate to use the word overpay because I you know, overpay, you never want to overpay for a player, but I think you can, I think you can pay a good price for a lot more high price players because in the end game, you know, we each have different you know, our last 15 players are different. We're, our $1 or $2 players are different. I'm going to get a $5 guy for a buck. You're going to get, you know, your $5 guys for a buck just because in the end game, we all think differently. We all evaluate players differently. So I, I don't want to say overpay. I don't want to say you can pay $50 for a $45 guy, but you can buy two $35 guys that are that are $35 and spend a lot of money up front because you're going to get guys you like at the back end under, under your price.
0: In fact, one of the most uh, important and useful things you ever told me. We were at Tout a few years ago, and this discussion came up about how much do you save for the end game so that you're in charge of it. And I remember you said, and I'm not exactly quoting you here; I may not even be paraphrasing you accurately. But basically, what you said at that time was, it doesn't matter. You shouldn't be saving any extra money for that purpose because the guy you think you're that you want to get for a dollar or two. Most of the other guys in your league don't want them anyway. You're going to be safe as long as you have enough of those guys at the bottom of your list. You can feel pretty confident. You're not going to have to save extra money to get that end game guy because who you think is a great end game guy,
5: you're the only guy who thinks so. So you're going to get them for a dollar anyway. Right now, uh, to be clear, you're now in tote AL. This is when you were in mixed. Not not that it's not the same right. for the um, deeper AL and only leagues. I do, th- I, although I think it's. A, I think you do want. To have the ability to say two or three in the only leagues versus the mixed leagues, where you know you don't you know you don't have to worry about leaving money on the table because you're going to get the guy for a dollar. So at the time it was for the mixed leagues, right? But I I think it, it holds true for ale, and you've now been in both leagues, so maybe you can speak better better to that. But I think in the in the end game of the only you do want to have I don't know about the hammer, but for at least one or two players you'd like to be able to say two and get the guy you want over the guy you have to settle for.
0: Yeah, that's right. I was in mixed at the time, and the discussion was about mixed. And in that particular context, it makes even more sense to, to uh, assume that most of your $1 guys are going to be $1 at the end of the draft. Uh, in the, in the AL-only format that I'm now playing in, I think, again, that you're correct, that you have to be a little more um, careful that you have some extra bidding money at the end of the draft. I typically like to be holding... I don't know five or six dollars for my last three or four guys, kind of thing, so I can go two or even three if need be to get a, a critical guy. Not so much because I think that uh, um, that the valuations are going to be the same for me to the next guy, but our needs in the auction at that time might be the same. In other words, right? You know, you and I are are in this only league format, and we get down to the point where I was really hoping to get Marwin Gonzalez for a buck. And uh, and I know you don't think much of Marwan Gonzalez. I still can't assume that you're not going to bid on him cuz the the pickings are so thin that when we get to that point you might say I don't like Marwan Gonzalez but I got a bid on him cuz he's the only guy left that that suits my needs.
5: Yep, no, exactly. You're right about the needs and um and yeah, it does it does come down to needs and it just it all it, it, comes down to opportunity where where your where your toss is versus the your, your nomination versus the uh, how soon it's going to be do you need to go two at that point because your guy's not going to come up so yeah for sure but in mixed league you know we'll, we'll hopefully talk next spring and bring this back up again but you know it, it we all we just all think of players in a different light and we it's just a shame to leave money on the table in a mixed league
0: Uh, Yeah, or in any other kind of league for that matter. And uh, one other thing I would say that in the single league format, it's doubly important to have that extra dollar to spend on hitters versus pitchers because of the increasing number of pitchers that are available because of how major league teams are structuring their rosters. There's so few hitters by the time you get to the end of the draft you really can't afford to uh, not be able to get at least that last guy that you want Uh, you're listening to baseball hq radio patrick davitt with todd zola uh, from masters ball and espn and rotowire and todd also at masters ball you had a column recently called closing time about the challenges of projecting saves give us the high points of that column
5: yeah, now I guess the first one is, we talked about this in the first Pitch Forum Tour, the uh, Baseball HQ sponsored tour, is that there is a correlation between team wins and saves. And I know that you, you know closers on bad teams get saves, but I think parts economics and that the better teams can afford better closers and better relievers, but there is a direct correlation between uh, how good the team is, the number of wins they get, and the number of saves they generate. You know that's all well and good. Um, it's part intuitive, but I think some people want to be cute and say that you know any team can get saves, which they can. But um, so you know that's good. But still, why do some closers on lesser teams get so many saves? I wanted to try to figure that out as well. So I I, I ran some correlations between uh, ERA that they the give up, the, the amount of runs scored uh, that the team has, and the run differential, and Intuitively, I thought maybe run differential would be the one that had the highest correlation, but it's actually ERA. In that, the lower, there was more of a correlation between save opportunity. Actually, it's not save opportunities. This is percentage of percentage of wins that were saved. It's important to note that that I'm running the correlation between ERA and the percentage of the team's wins that were saved. The league average is 53. You know, some teams are 57, 58 percent. Uh, and I found that the, the biggest correlation was, uh, the lowest ERA. So that kind of tells me if I want to, if I don't want to just assume that, you know, project wins and then project 53% of those wins will get saved. If I want to, you know, tweak, hand tweak some, some particular closers, those closers that pitch for teams with a high, with a lower ERA, I can maybe, you know, use a higher than 53% of the wins are saved. So, um. What this this sort of has to do with now is, you know, part of what I do is up-to-date rest-of-season projections. And I look at some of these closers that are, you know, Greg Holland, just closing, it seems to be, every single day. What do I do for a seasonal projection? I mean, do I figure he's going to get 45 at the end of the year and just subtract what he has from it? I mean, we're halfway through. Do I double it? You know, do I apply some logic to it? So that's why I wanted to find out these sort of baseline uh, assessments and then kind of just reproject based upon how I feel Colorado will do the rest of the year, uh, the, the percentage of saves that they're, that I feel that their closers will get and how many of those will Greg Holland get. So, you know, it's kind of tedious to do for all 30 teams every single week, but the majority of teams are are fairly straightforward. There There's not a whole lot of teams that are, they're pacing to what they're probably going to pace to at the end of the season. There aren't too many teams that are you know, winning a lot more games or losing a lot more. I mean, of course, no one's going to double what they're doing now, but it's still close enough that it's not going to change a saves projection much. So that's kind of where that came from, was um, how do I go about figuring out how A.J. Ramos is going to do? Because he had like eight saves at the time I did the article, and that just didn't make sense to me. Yeah,
0: I remember doing a... I can't remember whether it was a master notes or a research piece on saves because there was that argument that was uh, pretty common, which was, do you want a saver, a closer on a good team because there's more wins to, to save, but their margins of victory tend to be larger, or do you want more, uh, to get your closers from lesser teams because there's fewer wins, but they tend to be closer. And I remember it came out very solidly on the side of you want to pitch, you want to get a closer from the best team possible because the number of uh, wins that te- that get saved tends to be right around 50%, and when it's not, it tends to be kind of an outlier thing, and it's not predictable I- in the same way that we need it to be predictable to assess it. So if I'm faced with a choice at any time, and I can ch- take a guy who's on a team I think is going to do well versus a team I think is not going to do well, I'll take the team that's going to do well every time, just because there's going to be more wins there for them to save.
5: Right. Now, you, you know, someone's out there saying that's why I picked Kenley Jansen. Well, you probably also didn't expect the Dodgers to have like the fifth best offense in the league, and and that you know they, they're they're just their offense. I mean their DRA, their ERA is very good too, but their offense is a lot better than we thought it would be. And that, that yeah, having said that, I think that Jansen's a guy who will get you know more save chances relative to the. To what he's gotten over the first half, but that's sort of the, the the counter there is you know the Dodgers are going to be good. I picked up Kenley Jansen, so but yeah and and you know and it's it's a little bit more than okay Holland saving games left and right. Of course, duh. I don't need these numbers to know he's gonna the pace is gonna slow and and that Ramos is is, is you know has such a few amount of saves and the pace will pick up. I don't need all these numbers to know. Well, you got a guy like Craig Kimbrell who's saving a ton of games, and I don't think his pace is going to slow. Um, so, I, so part of the reason being, uh, on the uh, on the road, uh, Holland had saved like 64% of the Rockies' road wins, and even though the Rockies had a very very low team ERA on the road, that's still a high percentage. That's still an outlying number of games, close games that were played on the road. So that number is going to come down, and conversely. Uh, it's not that Ramos, well, Ramos isn't the greatest closer, and Miami, they're not the greatest team, but it, with his situation, he was only 32% of the Dolphins, of the Dolphins, geez, of the Marlin wins were saved. And that historically would be the second lowest mark ever. So obviously it can happen because it happened one other time, but chances are more, more even if they continue on the same pace and win the same number of games, more than 32% of them We'll, we'll have a save. And sure enough, listen, it's been one week, so this isn't like victory. But in the last week, Ramos has three saves and Holland doesn't have any. So so it just it, it just kinda of goes to show that uh that that there's some method to the madness, although it was kind of a you know, cherry pick these two guys that happen to fall within the plan and they're getting closer to the pace that was predicted. Now the Rockies have had, had a rough week. I still think they're a good team. I still believe in their pitching staff. So I, you know, I think they're just going through a little bit of a tailspin, and they'll go on another heater at some point and win a bunch of games in a row. So Holland will get, you know, get back to getting his saves again.
0: Well, in preparation for this, I actually looked at uh, BaseballReference.com and from 2011 to 2017, and just ranked teams by their total save totals, and uh, the high water mark tends to be 51 plus. And I just looked at those. There's 27 teams who accomplished that in the last uh, since 2011, and uh, of those, only four were sub 500 teams, and eight or nine were uh, were over 600 teams, and most of the rest were well above 500. So I think just on just on that kind of course examination, it seems like if you want saves, you should look at teams that are going to win a lot of games, and then the challenge becomes who's going to get the saves within that team, as you said.
5: Right. And if you if you are looking for one factor to try to be cute and figure out, you know, okay, that's obvious, so I know I wanna go beyond that, the lower the team ERA, the better chance that a greater percentage of the of those teams uh, wins or say so maybe maybe you know, you get your good closer, maybe you'd use that for your second closer and you know, you try to if if, if, if the if the routine projection is this team's gonna win 78 games and therefore i'm going to sign 39 saves if that team that wins 78 games has a low era uh it may just be that their offense is terrible that's why they're not winning then that closer may close more than half of the games you may be able to project 42 or 43 saves for that closer yeah I understand
0: that, and it's a good point. uh, But we should also understand that when we do that, we we need to say that sometimes you'd rather have 50% of a team's total than than the other guy's 55% because 50% of a lot is better than 55% of not very much. Uh, Last time we spoke, Todd, we discussed your weekly pitcher rankings and some of the adjustments you were making. You had a more recent article about your batter rankings. That article ran at Rotowire. So first, let's explain that you don't think rankings – is the ideal word for what you're doing and of course we always call them rankings why don't you like the term
5: yeah actually uh it's gonna well well it'll be changed in a couple days at at this point or or up until now it's been more of a a tabular array of data uh how many games versus lefties righties home and away and the uh the aggregate park index for home runs for left-handed, right-handed hitters. So it's it's the sort of the data that, that the norm, not, I'm going to say the normal person, that's not really what I mean, <laughs> the, 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 the data that we all use to sort of set our lineup decisions. Um, and th- so there's really no rank in there. And some of the, there was people in the article, well, first people, some people just saying it, it's, it's not rankings don't call it rankings other people are saying why aren't you ranking the teams why aren't you telling me which is the best team for the week in my response and it, it wasn't it, basically I asked I've been asking why do you want a rank for me it's on a individual player I want to know the individual factors you know if, if I'm if I'm ranking between a speed guy and a power guy I don't really care what the home run index for for gore I don't care if, if the if the the um, I'm not gonna say dolphins again if the Marlins are in Colorado and Arizona for a, a, a week away from home I don't care that it's good for home runs for for D I, I care for Justin Bohr I care for Marcelo Zuna I don't care for for D Gordon so if if part of the rank is the is the is the power index then I'm, I'm it's misleading for Gordon vice versa or, or the other thing being if uh if those if those catchers and those teams are poor throwing runners out and the pitchers are poor at holding runners, that helps a speedster, and it doesn't help a guy that doesn't steal. So I just, I didn't see the need to rank by team. You know, or, or, or you know, I, I just thought, if, if I'm deciding between Seth Smith and Matt Joyce, Baltimore, B, I know where to find Baltimore, alphabetical. Oh, Oakland, I know where to find Matt Joyce, what are the things, and go from there. Um, the other thing I learned, and this is, uh, you know, a, a life lesson, uh, actually I learned it in a pizza shop, was uh, A, the customer's always right, and B, when the customer's wrong, C, A. So you know what, if readers want rankings, they're gonna get rankings. So what I've done is I've expanded the tabular data to include stolen bases, the uh, quality of opponent pitching, and the quality of the team's the, their own team's offense a better a better offense you know no matter what your slash line is on a better team you're going to get more runs in rbi so i've now added in more indices and if people want me to come up with an average of those indices so they can sort and they can rank them that's what i've now done so on, on the next piece uh and i also you know l- learned some html so i can so i can use sortable columns now which i think was the most uh daunting task of this of this whole of this whole upgrade was learning the html um, you know, I'm going to list them alphabetically, but there's going to be a final score. If you want the team sorted by what I consider the the best team for the week and the worst team for the week, hit that button and bing, bang, boom. They're sorted in that manner. I'm going to leave them alphabetical for my own listings, but um, you know, it's it's now there. The customers that want it sorted, it's there. So I spent some time this week coming up with some speed scores based upon pitchers and catchers, how well they hold runners. Um, projecting part of what I do anyway for the pitching is project the run scored for each week so I can get a win probability so I already had that so it was easy enough to figure out how to come up with a an index for the amount of runs that team's going to score that week and the challenging one was how do you rate the opposing team's pitchers so because uh, you have ref- lefty righty and you have the bullpen so it was a little more integrate but I came up with a way uh to to uh, quantify the opposing pitchers. So those have now been added along with an average for lefty, an average for righty, and an overall average for those that just don't care if they're hitters or lefties or righties. They just want to know how Zola think the team's going to do this week.
0: Speaking of lefties and righties, you also confirmed in the column what you acknowledge already that most fantasy owners know there is such a thing as a platoon advantage, uh, left-handed hitters versus right-handed pitchers and vice versa. But I found it interesting that that you say daily fantasy players should not exploit hitters who show the reverse splits. Now, it seems, and I know it's a lot of people think you should exploit that that uh, fact, because not a lot of people are going to pay that close of attention, which means you might find uh, that you're the only guy or one of a handful of people in your draft who has taken a, a right-handed hitter against a right-handed pitcher because most people don't know that he actually hits better that way and actually hits effectively that way. Why don't you think we should take advantage of that?
5: Well, basically because the, the splits aren't always real. Yeah, This is too small a sample to say a guy owns his splits. Now, pitchers can own their splits, and the reason being they've got the ball, their arsenal can attack a righty or lefty, uh, etc. Now, and this isn't to say that some hitters don't go against the league norm as far as splits go. But all it's saying is that and, and this is some from so you mentioned um Lickman before, uh now I can use the word dolphin and, and, and Tom Tango, the authors of the book, playing the percentages in baseball, they 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 show that in order for a hitter to own their splits versus a lefty, a left handed better needs a thousand plate appearances and a right handed better needs two thousand. And using the you know 650 plate appearances a full season and the, roughly the amount of right, lefty and righty pitchers out there, it takes six and a half years for a left-handed batter to, to accrue a 1,000 plate appearances. It takes 13 years for a right-handed batter. So it, it basically takes six and a half years for a left-handed batter so you can look at his performance get lefties and say, that's what he does. And it takes 13 years for a righty. Now, the thing being... As you get closer to that mark, you know you you own some of it, but you don't own it all. What you you know what you don't own you have to consider to be league average. So you can regress the the, the number of plate appearances you have, and you know whatever is left to reach that plateau. If you use if you assume league average, and then kind of do a weighted average, you can you can come up with that sort of you know uh, you can actually ask you can actually come up with a number. So players can have a a, a lean towards. The split that they own but you can't assume it's the number that you see on the page and the ones that are really you know it's the it's the ones after you know whatever eight weeks of a season where for for his for his career he's shown particular splits but this year he's hitting lefties better than righties or righties better than lefties those are the splits that people try to exploit in DFS. Well, so far this year, he's he's hit much better against lefties. Well, he hasn't faced a lot of lefties so far, and it's just noise. You know, that that that's the split that I don't think we need to be or we shouldn't be exploiting. Is isn't so much a career long, a, a career long uh, reverse split because, like I said, even if you haven't played 13 years, if you played eight or nine, it's still mostly real. It's just not all the way there yet. But if you've played, you know, four or five years and this year it's showing to be the reverse, I can't. I don't think you can say, well, this year Jones is hitting lefties better than righties, therefore I'm, I'm going to take advantage and use him in DFS because he's priced cheaper or whatever.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I, I've always been curious about that whole idea of when do players own the stats because at Baseball HQ the the saying or the, the slogan is once you display a skill you own it but the question has always been how long do you have to display it before you own it and now there's uh, as you know there's been some uh, recalibration going on about how much this, of the stats a player owns based on his plate appearances or innings pitched or batters faced or whatever the case might be because the guy who kind of came up with those first examples uh, or publicized them anyway, has written a a follow-up article saying, oh, wait a second, these are not projectable. These are just descriptions of what has happened and what would happen if the exact same circumstances recurred over and over again. So I think there's still some work to do, um, not by people who are much more skilled at math than I am, but also just for those of us who play the game in understanding that maybe even though the 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 guideline is it takes you know 100 at bats for a contact rate to stabilize maybe that's true but it doesn't mean the next 100 bats are going to be at the same rate
5: right yeah we talked about this earlier because i've been i don't want to say I was the first one out there but i was definitely one of the first to run with that whole stabilization thing in my projections and uh you know have since uh made actually i made some adjustments previous to that article just because i kind of had a sense that, that that was that I was misusing them. I, I still use it, but not to the extent that was that was given there. But sure. And then you know again, the, the I think the other thing to you know keep in mind is though is there are pitchers that you know have a certain their their changeup is more effective to the to the opposite hand in this hitter or whatever. So it it, it doesn't hold true with pitching. Pitching you can exploit uh, these sort of splits against teams. You know, and, and what I I'd also think you can when you try to, in DFS, if you're using a, a hitter against a pitcher that re- has reserves, reserve, reserve splits, I think that needs to be taken into consideration too, that if a righty hits a lefty particularly well, but that lefty is good at getting righties out, he may not have the same advantage as he usually does.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola from Masters Ball and ESPN and Rotowire. And Todd, last subject for this week uh, valuations. I had a podcast listener write me at uh, BHQ Radio at Gmail, and he asked me about valuation methods and how we know what things are worth and so on. And I said I would ask you because you're the guy I, that knows more about it than anybody else I know. So, bef- just as a first step, could you briefly describe the mechanisms of the three most common methods, starting with standing gains points?
5: Standing gains points. Uh, you know Art McGee, he, who, who's well known by HQ listeners, because uh, you folks are uh, sort of the uh, se- sell his book. Basically, what you do is you figure out how many uh, home runs, RBIs, etc., are needed to gain a point in the standings, and then you take a look at the number of, of each stat that that player is going to produce. And as you know, sort of a, an arc, as a crude example. If every five home runs get you a point and a hitter is supposed to hit 25 home runs, he's assigned five SGPs. So the unit that the, the, the currency in that method is SGP. So he's assigned five SGPs and this is done across all the different categories. So you get, you know, one SGP for RBIs, you know, 1.3 for steals or whatever it might be, you sum them up and you sum them up for all the players. And then you sort of, you, 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 you take the, whatever size league it is, and the last player in that league, and this is true for all different systems, the last player in the league is, is assigned a a, dollar, a value of one, of a dollar, and everything that gets scaled up based upon how much money is available in that league, the number of teams, time to budget, you come up with your hitter to pitching split. So you allocate the percentage of dollars equal to the percentage of SGPs totaled. For each player now it's a little more intricate than that you need to, there's some there's some uh replacement level considerations that need to be done and, and that that sort of thing but that's sort of the, the 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 main idea is that the the dollars available are allocated uh according to the percentage of sgps each player has versus the total sgps in the in the draft worthy pool so uh you know that that's um a brief rundown of sgp anyway and I believe the message, the method that you
0: use is called percentage value. And uh, how does that work?
5: Yeah, now that's here. It's 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 a little bit different. I don't care about the standings. I just care about the total number of home runs, the total number of RBIs, and I, I'm using counting stats. There's there's methods to use to convert ratios to counting stats. So, you know, we'll, we'll sort of, you know, hand wave that for now. Maybe we talk about that down the line in the spring when it's more, you know, more auction value sort of talk, but there's a method out there to convert ratios to counting stats. And what we care about here is, isn't, so, isn't the total SGPs versus the, um, the total uh, the player SGP versus the total SGP. It's the home runs that a player hits versus the, the, the home runs hit by the total pool of the draft-worthy pool, and again, there's replacement level uh, adjustments that need to be made, and and then each category is dis- is assigned the, the same number of dollars. Well, it doesn't have to be assigned the same number of dollars. You can tweak it, but for the purpose of this discussion, each category is assigned the same number of dollars, again, based on the number of teams, the maximum, and the hitting the pitching split, and the dollars within each category are distributed according to the percentage of stats that each player contributes in that particular category and then the, the different category numbers are summed up and adjustment again needs to be made so that the final player drafted is a is dollar and that's that's the um and that's the percentage value i think actually hq named it the percentage value method when i first wrote about it my readers deemed it the replacement method it really doesn't have a name but we i use pvm just because that's what hq calls it
0: it's a good name for it, I think, because it, it really does capture what you're trying to do. You get a percentage of the value of the st- of the right. stat that's that's created, so that actually does work. And uh, the third one, I think, is called the Z-score method, which would be a great name for you to use, actually. Uh, I think <laughs> it has something to do with each player's variation from the mean of the stat category. Do you know how that works?
5: Yeah, it's, 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 it's somewhat related to, this, to the SGP in, in, in that the... Um, you come up with the mean, and what you do is you measure the number of standard deviations the player is from that mean. So, whereas SGP is the sum of the players' SGPS versus the total pull, uh, the the the, the z-score is the sum of the standard deviations of each player as uh, as a proportion of the total number of standard deviations accrued by the entire pool. And again, you need to do the same replacement level and, and, and pool adjustments, et cetera. So that, that, that's the measurement there. I, you know, the, you can come up with a, at least a theoretical means why SGP and why PVM work. To me, standard deviation, the Z-score, it's elegant math, but I've yet, I don't know why or how that means, you know, how does that relate to a player's performance? I don't know for sure. That because he's two standard deviations above the mean, that he helps a team that much, a fantasy team, in proportion to that two standard deviations. It's really elegant math, but I don't know if there's a theoretical basis other than the math is nice.
0: All of these methods, Todd, depend on what you call the uh, draft-worthy pool. That is, regardless of whether you're totaling SGPs or, or the value of home runs or RBIs for PVM or the Z-score method, The underlying assumption is we're only going to take the top uh, 168 players or whatever in a 12-team pool. But it seems to me that to know who those 168 players are, you have to assign them a value. And so to assign them a value, they have to be in the draft-worthy pool to figure out how how much their stats are worth. Seems like there's some circular logic, and I've never been able to get my head around it. I don't know if it's circular,
5: but what it, that, that's sort of what I was hinting at at the end is you have to force the last player to be a dollar. I mean, if you're, if you're ranking, if, you, if you, you know, you're you—you counting up the SGPs, or whatever, and then assign them, it, it may be that, well, what they, what would you do? And, and this is in, in Art McKee's book. It's marginal pricing in that everybody gets a buck, and then the, the, the lowest amount of SGPs is, gets zero get to sign zero dollars so it's like one plus zero so you get zero so it's it, it, you're kind of you're forcing it it's not so much circular but you're forcing the number to to match the boundaries uh constraint the constraints by the by the by the by the money by the budget so i don't know i don't really know what circular. now where it is circular is in the pvm because that's you, there is replacement method there is replacement level there and it's sort of a it's a mythical, it doesn't really exist. It's not, you can't say this is the replacement level player because you, you got to add up across the five categories, homers, steals, and then pitchers, you know, the, the wins, Ks, ERA, etc. So it's kind of a mythical player. So, and, and depending upon uh, what you choose, different players can jump in the pool at the end, to, Based upon the replacement level player, so there, there it is somewhat circular, and it just you kind of wait for things to stabilize, and even then it's just kind of a hand waving guess. And this, this this speaks to our thing at the end, uh, what we're talking about about end end, end game players, how there we all think of them differently. It may just be that our valuation system. For whatever reason, because we chose a slightly different replacement level player, steals are worth more or worth less, and it just jumps players in or out of our draft-worthy pool. You know, if all you do is sort of blindly follow the numbers, you know, you, you not realize <laughs> realize where they came from. We could have different players just based on that. So it's it's I see there's some circularity to it, but to me it's it's more of a the, the I think it's kind of a flaw. It, it isn't The value isn't the value. You're forcing it to be this number to fit the numerical constraints.
0: And finally, the listener who wrote the email to me kind of wondered about the workings of the black box for valuation uh, for pr- um, how much the dollars are applied to each player. But these calculations are... Well, pretty well understood. They're certainly available, right? You've described them, I know, in, in your work and here at Baseball HQ Radio and elsewhere. Art McGee wrote a whole book about how his system works. He certainly wasn't keeping it a secret. Larry Schechter covered some valuation methods in his book in great detail. So are there actual differences in how you do the percentage valuation method versus the next guy? Or are the differences in the valuations... The result of differences in how you project the stats and that is a black box
5: well part of it is that i mean you can you know we can each four people can be given the same exact projections asked to come up with values and you're going to come up with four different sets of values now that doesn't make sense they should have a you know, it should be one well that kind of tells you right there that that, that there isn't there isn't really a good uh, the right way of doing it but you know specific, speaking towards you know my my method i kind of alluded to it before in that you need to use a replacement level, so we may come up with different replacement level players. We whether we whether you average the the, the, the ten the ten players that are at the very bottom of the pool and use those stats, or whatever you do. Or so another difference might be how we handle scarcity in that. Uh, do you do you do it? Do you do this for each? Indiv- do you have a different replacement level for each position, or do you do what I do now and say that the replacement level is so close with with multiple eligibilities and middle infield and corner infield and utility that to be honest, the stats of a second baseman are, are the same as an outfielder. So I only use two different pools. I only do catcher and compare that to um, a non-catcher. I just use two pools at this point. So. There could be some differences along those lines, but the dirty little secret, and and you folks had an article earlier in the season, and I've done some work on it simultaneously. That that did, unfortunately didn't reach as big of an audience, but there's really not that much of a difference. And the difference is so small, it's not the number. It's what you do with the number. You know, if 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 you come up with forty-four dollars for Mike Trout, and I come up with forty-six, and co- someone else comes up with forty-two. It, I don't want to say they're arbitrary, but it's it, the number is not, there, there are ranges, the, the, the actual number itself is not static. So if, if, which is better? You know, We all have the methods we like to use better, but I don't think anybody wins a league because they use one method over another. I think they win the league because they know what better to do with those numbers than the next guy.
0: And I explained to the fellow who wrote to me at bhqradio@gmail.com. At I said I said pretty much the same thing that the 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 various methods usually come up with fairly similar results, assuming that they come up with similar projections. Now, if you think that Mike Trout's going to steal forty bases, and the guy next to you thinks he's going to steal twenty, and all other things are equal, obviously the forty stolen base projection is going to result in a much higher valuation in dollars. But that's not a difference in the method; that's a difference in the projection, and that that's where these differences happen. And, and I know from how Ray Murphy has described it, and I've talked to you about it, there are mathematical or arithmetical ways that we arrive at these projections based on weighted average from previous years and so forth. But you also use experience, for want of a better term, you also use wisdom in, in setting those projections and saying, yeah, this is what the, the projection says based on the math, but I know he's moved to a better park. Or I know that he's a year older and he's coming off an injury. So I'm going to increase or decrease the home runs, increase or decrease the stolen bases beyond what the math says. And to me, that's where the black box is.
5: Yeah, yeah, I, d- definitely. And we've talked to that not all players um, adhere linearly to park effects and that sort of thing. And, you know, there's getting used to the new team. And, you know, look at Encarnacion what he did in April versus what Edward Encarnacion's done the last couple months. He's, he's back to being, you know, normal. It was kind of funny. Remember that the big thing was, you know, we, we, back in April, would you trade Eric Thames for Encarnacion? It's like, yeah, I'd rather have Thames. <laughs> well, if you made that trade right now, you're not very happy. So, you know, it's so, but, but yeah, that, that is the big difference. And there are, and, and one of the things that your, your study showed early in the season with the different methods, they handle, and the reason they're a little differently is, they handle steels, you know, the singular categories. They they hand they they give a little bit different weights to steels, and that kind of, you know, domino affects all the other different numbers. So the other thing too, though, if if you know, if you know what system, uh, what how it how what it does and why it gives a number, it does. That's just the next step towards knowing what to do with the number. And you know, we didn't. I'm not, this isn't really the place, but I think there's some flaws within SGP. But the problem, the thing is. Those numbers are sort of have been around for so long that they've been ac- accepted by the market. So even though it's it's kind of like you know, if an umpire is consistently wrong, it's okay. If the valuation is consistently wrong, it's become accepted for what it's worth. I don't think of it. I don't think an umpire that consistently wrong is okay. I hate I hate that narrative that if an umpire always calls this pitch a ball, then it's a ball. No, he's he's just always wrong. But that's neither here nor there. Um, but the point being. Uh, the uh, SGP has set stolen base guys to be worth a certain amount, even though air, va- air quotes, they're not, it's, it's because that's what the market is so used to. That's what it is. So, uh, you know, I can make some mathematical adjustments to my system to make the numbers match, or I can say that my system value steals correctly. Beware that the market is going to value them less, so... You can take advantage of that, but just don't forget you can't draft all steals guys. You can take advantage on one or two guys, but then you're going to have to, you know, know how to get your power elsewhere, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's it's kind of a it's it's not just knowing the number for each, si- each system, but knowing why that system gives a number of a particular ilk.
0: Todd as always it's been a fun interesting conversation i do appreciate it we'll have you back within the next week or two or three and we'll continue talking about this and other subjects i do appreciate you taking the time
5: all right like listeners i hope you you know have a have a safe fourth so you're back with us next time with all your uh, all your fingers and all your toes
0: and a safe canada day for those of you north in the border yes. like me which is a few days actually it's saturday and then the 4th i think is tuesday Uh, A couple of days apart for our two countries to have their birthdays. So uh, happy birthday to y'all, and I hope you wish us a happy birthday in return, and I'll talk to you again soon, Todd. Absolutely. Todd Zola appears regularly at Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and regularly here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our Baseball HQ commentaries are next, so you should stay with us on Baseball HQ Radio. But for right now, remember you should also check out BaseballHQ.com this week. We have more great new articles on the site right now, like our Playing Time Tomorrow feature, where division analysts look at the future of the teams in their divisions, like Brian Slack this week is looking at the National League West, including the San Francisco rotation, the Rockies and Diamondbacks outfield, San Diego's catchers, and the Dodgers' bullpen. In Facts and Flukes, analyst Brian Rudd looks at a disappointing Johnny Cueto, a disappointing Rich Hill, the distinctly not-disappointing Mark Reynolds and other players. And in Market Pulse, Joseph Pitleski looks at the ads and drops across all kinds of public leagues to assess the free agent fantasy market. And this week, you'll read names like Eric Young, Robinson Chirinos, Randall Gritchuk, and Wade Miley. There's a whole bunch more, and it's all online now or coming up soon. And it's just the kind of fantasy baseball intelligence for winners that makes us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time, frequent flyers, weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes. And leading off, it's the minor league minute. And here with a look at Cleveland catching prospect Francisco Mejia is Baseball HQ Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon. The Cleveland Indians' Francisco Mejia continues
6: to be a revelation at the plate. The 21-year-old Mejia signed out of the Dominican Republic in 2012 for the relatively modest price of $350,000. When he originally signed, scouts really liked his switch-hitting bat but projected him to hit for below-average power. He did have a plus arm behind the plate but had limited experience and needed a lot of work. Since then, Mejia has improved in all aspects of the game. He has developed into arguably the best pure hitter in the minors with plus bat to ball skills that allow him to make consistent hard contact. He doesn't draw a ton of walks, but he also doesn't swing and miss very often. With a 5'10", 180-pound frame, Mejia isn't likely to develop plus power, but he does have 8 home runs on the year and is on pace to beat his career high of 11, which he hit last year. Mejia really emerged on the national scene in 2016 with a 50-game hit streak between low and high A, which lasted from May until August and resulted in a futures game appearance. Mejia ended the year with a slash line to 3.42, with a .382 on-base percentage and a .514 slugging percentage with 29 doubles and 11 home runs and 407 at at-bats. This year has been more of the same, and through 45 games, Mejia is hitting .366 with a .408 on-base percentage and a .616 slugging percentage with 15 doubles and 8 home runs and just 172 double-8 at-bats. Mejia has also worked hard to improve his receiving and framing skill, and now has a chance to stick behind the plate long-term. Because of his ability to barrel the ball consistently, Francisco Mejia is a must-own in all long-term keeper formats, and his dominant performance this year and last could have him in the majors before the end of the year. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon.
0: Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, moves inside organizations, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. Our recent prospect coverage includes call-up reports on Yankees third base prospect Miguel Andujar, A's shortstop prospect, Franklin Barreto, Cincinnati right-handed starting prospect, Luis Castillo, Cubs outfield prospect, Mark Zagunas, and more call-ups. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now our playing time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we look at possible rotation changes in St. Louis and Toronto. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield.
2: Possible rotation changes were a common theme in the Playing Time Tomorrow space this week on the site. So we'll take a look at a few of the bigger potential changes that could shortly have some fantasy baseball impact here this week. We'll start in St. Louis, where Michael Wacha has struggled lately. After putting up an impressive 2.55 ERA in April, Waka's posted a 5.50 mark since May 1st, which led our own Sam Grant to speculate how much longer Waka might have a rotation spot in St. Louis. Waka's skills have dragged since the hot start; his base performance value or BPV has dropped in each month from 107 in April to 86 and then down to 52 in June. Waiting in the wings should St. Louis make a move or another injury strike the rotation is Luke Weaver. Weaver's put up a sparkling 193 ERA through 11 starts at AAA Memphis with 60 strikeouts to just 13 walks. Weaver's battled through a back injury this season but has little left to prove in the minors right now. Weaver was a top 100 prospect on our HQ 100 this season and a call-up seems imminent to St. Louis so stash Weaver if you can. And north of the border in Toronto, Aaron Sanchez is making his way back from a finger issue and reportedly felt good in his first rehab start in high A. Sanchez is on track to return to Toronto's rotation by around the All-Star break. So Chris Olsen looked at who might be on their way out of the rotation in his AL East playing time tomorrow column to make room for Sanchez. And it looks like it'll be Joe Biagini. Biagini's put up a 588 ERA over his last five starts with a 466 expected ERA. He's been great at getting ground balls with a ground ball rate in the high 50s, but a 19 to 9 strikeout to walk ratio in Biagini's last 26 innings will likely have him as the odd man out. So, Biagini owners in deeper leagues should start planning for his absence, perhaps laying a waiver claim or fab bid on Luke Weaver in St. Louis. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com.
0: Baseball HQ analyst Ryan Bloomfield has a playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for frequent flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyers are Cubs catcher Victor Caratini, we talked about him earlier, and San Diego relief pitcher Phil Maton. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com
7: analyst Alex Becky. Although it may not yet be the 4th of July, the fireworks have already started for some clubs, including the world champion Chicago Cubs, who recently designated catcher Miguel Montero for assignment after some negative post-game comments. Sure, the Cubs still have started catcher Wilson Contreras, but the player brought up to replace Miguel Montero could be an intriguing option, especially in NL-only leagues. And he's one of two frequent flyers that will profile this week. Acquired in the 2014 trade deadline deal, it sent Emilio Bonifacio and James Russell to Atlanta. Former second-round draft pick Victor Caratini has already set a career high in home runs this season while batting 343 in 245 at at-bats for the AAA Iowa Cubs. Plus, as our own Jeremy Deloney pointed out in the June 29th edition of Call-Ups on BaseballHQ.com, Victor Caratini is a tough out, who mainly uses the middle of the field, but that could eventually sap his raw power potential. Keep in mind, though, we really don't know how many games he'll start behind Wilson Contreras. And, let's face it, he could be set down at any time. That's why Victor Caratini, just like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be long shots, who may be worth a flyer if they are still available in your league. Then again, with the trade deadline only about a month away, maybe the Cubs will want to showcase Victor Caratini in July. In other words, maybe this 23-year-old switch-hitting catcher is worth a flyer, just like 24-year-old San Diego righty Phil Mayton, was not allowed a single-earned run in his first nine games with the Padres while striking out 11. Sure, it's a small sample size, but so is Phil Mayton's entire 84-game minor league career. Drafted in the 20th round in 2015 out of Louisiana Tech, Phil Mayton advanced quickly through the Padres system all the way to AAA in 2016, his first full professional season. After making his Major League debut on June 11th, Phil Mayton is being used more and more in higher leverage situations by the Padres where he's already earned his first career win and his first career save at the Major League level. Jeremy Deloney, in the June 12th edition of Call-Ups on BaseballHQ.com, described Phil Maton as owning outstanding natural stuff with a late innings mentality. According to Jeremy, Phil Maton's power arsenal is highlighted by his heavy 92-96 to mile-per-hour fastball, mixed in with a curveball, a cutter, and a slider. Could this power arsenal allow Phil Maton to finish the year as San Diego's closer? Maybe that's reaching a little bit. But as we pointed out earlier, the fast-approaching trade deadline may offer some unique opportunities, just like the ones your team might find when you consider adding. Both Victor Caratini and Phil Mayton, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com.
0: Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now our weekend pitcher matchups report. Matchups are rated on a scale that's centered on zero. Ratings of plus one or better are strong bets to start. Ratings of minus one or worse are strong bets to sit. Between the ones are in the wild card range. They're toss ups, and you're going to have to consider them based on your own risk appetite. With a look at weekend matchups, including Houston right-hander Francis Martez, Texas left-hander Cole Hamels, and other pitchers on the weekend, here's Matchups analyst Greg Fishwick.
1: Only three pitchers have recommended start matchup ratings this weekend. Boston's Chris Sale has a 138 going into Toronto. Washington's Max Scherzer has a 122 in St. Louis. And Houston's 21-year-old rookie right-hander Francis Martez has a 107 at home versus the New York Yankees. Sale and Scherzer have been marquee matchup men already this season, so let's take an early look at Francis Martez in this weekend's marquee matchup. Martez faces another rookie in Yankee left-hander Jordan Montgomery, who has a matchup rating of minus 097. The Astros and Yankees are numbers 1 and 2 in the most recent USA Today power rankings and in American League run production, so don't expect Martez to hold the Bronx Bombers in check. Martez has only 16 innings of Major League work in three starts and one relief appearance. He's put up one PQS dominant outing and two PQS disasters. In his small AAA sample of 8 starts and 32 innings pitched at Fresno, Martez walked 28. That poor control continued in his tiny major league sample with 11 free passes in those 16 innings. Martez has struck out 16 in the show, and in his 32 AAA innings, he whiffed 38, Martez has tons of talent, earning a 9C rating from our minors analysts, meaning they give him a 50% probability of reaching his potential as a number two starter. Martez ranked 25th on the BaseballHQ.com Top 100 Preseason Prospect list. But with a 2017 total of just 48 innings pitched in 12 appearances, Martez is averaging only four innings pitched in his eight AAA and four major league outings. His recommended start matchup rating is a mirage formed more by his team's strong showing this season than by his small sample of big league experience. It's still too soon to start Francis Martez in this weekend's marquee matchup. Only three starters have worse matchup ratings than our Saturday surprise. Like him, all three are also lefties. Cleveland's Ryan Merritt, Cincinnati's Cody Reed, and San Diego's Christian Friedrich. Merritt has started one game in 2017, and Reed and Friedrich are making their season debuts. Saturday surprise Cole Hamels has six games started in 2017 and 344 in his Major League career. But the end of the line may be coming sooner than expected for the 33-year-old Hamels. Hamels has a matchup rating of minus 185 for the Rangers in hitter friendly U.S. cellular field. He's opposed by another southpaw, former Ranger Derek Holland. Holland has a matchup rating of minus 021. Both teams are under 500, with the White Sox sitting at 24th in the latest USA Today power rankings, and the Rangers up at 18. The Sox have the second best record in the American League versus left handers, and are four wins better at home than the Rangers are on the road. Texas is five wins better than Chicago against teams under 500, scores more runs, and has a positive run differential. Hamels has logged over 200 innings in seven consecutive seasons and eight of the past nine, falling six innings short in the year he missed that mark and averaging 207 innings pitched over the past 10 years. He's projected to approach his career low in innings pitched and career highs in expected ERA, ERA, and WIP, despite a career low hit percentage. He has a career high control rate of 3.9 walks per nine and a career low dominance rate of 3.9 strikeouts per nine. After establishing a 13% swinging strike rate and a 60% first pitch strike rate for his career, Hamels has a 55% first pitch strike rate and a 7% swinging strike rate this season. Last season was Hamels' first with a BPV below 101 at 96. This season, his base performance value is minus 7, and his fantasy values also are negative numbers. Three of Hamels' past four starts have been PQS disasters, and he has no PQS dominance this season. Hamill spent nearly two months on the disabled list with a right oblique strain and has made only one start since his return. He may have come back too soon, or there may be something even worse wrong with him. But after a decade of dominance, it's certainly a surprise to see Cole Hamels struggling this season. The recommended sit list of 22 starters is too long to enumerate, but four weekend matchups are noteworthy. For the second time this season, we have a pair of weekend doubleheaders. On Saturday, the Indians and Tigers tangle in Detroit, and the Twins and Royals rumble in KC. Of the dozen pitchers starting the three games for those four teams, half have recommended sit matchup ratings, and half have wildcard matchup ratings. That bodes well for your hitters on the Royals, Twins, Indians, and Tigers. Also load your lineups with Marlins and Mets, as their opposing pitchers all have recommended sit matchup ratings. Here's hoping your teams are hitting on all cylinders heading into the second half of the season. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com.
0: Baseball HQ pitcher matchups analyst Greg Fishwick has his weekend pitcher matchup segment here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about the 2017 ADPs versus 2017 realities. I learned a lot in many years working with and for Ron Chandler. It was the result of his insistence that we have come to understand and embrace the imprecision of projections and valuations. This theme recurred in Ron's fine opening essays in the Baseball Forecaster Annual, and every so often, Ron would write a piece here at Master Notes showing how many players defied projections and valuations. As I write this on Thursday, June 29th, MLB is almost exactly at the midpoint of the 2017 season, and I thought that might be a fine time to check and see how preseason projections have panned out so far. So in this edition of Master Notes, I compared preseason ADPs with current year-to-date player performance to look for patterns in the differences as well as players with big jumps and falls in their preseason rounds versus their year-to-date rounds. My main data source was the excellent BaseballHQ.com custom draft guide, I'll call it the CDG from now on. I use these settings, a 15-team mixed league using standard 5x5 roto categories and a standard roster, 14 hitters, 9 pitchers, 6 reserves, 435 players in all, 70-30 hit pitch budget split for the current valuations, and preseason ADPs from the CDG output. Those are averaged from several sources, so there were some ties. I resolved these mostly by ignoring them, since they only mattered in cases where the ADP tide happened to occur at the wheel, where rounds transition, and the difference between rounds is nominal anyway. To get current rounds, I used the CDG dollar values, then simply ranked the players from the most valuable year to date, that's Paul Goldschmidt, to the 1,126th most valuable, Baltimore starter Chris Tillman who's just behind Baltimore starter Ubaldo Jimenez, who's just behind Baltimore starter Kevin Gausman? which makes it remarkable that the Orioles aren't 10 wins, 70 losses at this point. Those top 435 year-to-date players were assigned to rounds pretty much as you'd expect, from top to bottom, 15 at a time. All players from year-to-date number 436, just outside the rounds, were rated as round 30, free agents, to facilitate the subtraction process. I did impose some limits for what I would consider interesting. And since I'm already past the 300 word mark and haven't said anything of note yet, I suspect I'm testing your limit in that regard, but the overall round analyses did not include players outside the top 4 to 35 by ADP since that covers more than 600 free agents and most of them stayed below roster level. Among individual players, I decided that big gainers had to have 7th round year to date value or $15 or they had to have jumps of 10 or more rounds. Nobody's really that curious about a round 16 guy who jumps to round 13. Similarly, big losers must have started with ADPs in the 7th round or better, or dropped 10-plus rounds. Overall, what I found was that Ron Chandler was right. Only about 4% of players are in the same round year to date as where they were drafted. An additional 9% are one round different, a round higher or a round lower, and 7% are within two. But 38% missed by 10 or more rounds, and another 24% were 5 to 9 rounds out of sync. That's almost two-thirds of players overdrafted or underdrafted by 6 rounds or more. 12 of the 23 ADP rounds had zero matches with their year-to-date, and so did 5 of the 6 reserve rounds. Remember, in both cases, this means some players were above their ADP rounds and some were below. The median error in rounds was minus 4. Every round but one had a range of YTD outcomes of 20 or more. In general, though, the ADP rounds show a steady downward slope in average dollar value with a few blips. The 7th and 8th rounds stand out in particular, as both are significantly better than the 5th and 6th rounds in average year-to-D round and average year-to-date dollar value. Also, the 17th, 20th, and 23rd ADP rounds all returned year-to-date results above their level. That's not surprising when you listen to who's in the rounds. In the 17th, eight players have double-digit year-to-date dollar value, including Domingo Santana, Ivan Nova, Brandon Kinsler, Jed Jorko, Greg Holland, Matt Holliday, David Peralta, and Melky Cabrera. The 20th has over-performers like Chris Owings, Brandon Phillips, Brett Gardner, Justin Bauer, and Josh Reddick. And the 23rd has Steven Souza Jr., Luis Severino, and Aaron Judge. You might have heard of him. The lesson in this last bunch of players might be that there's some profit to be made by betting on underappreciated closers, like Brandon Kinsler and Greg Holland, just as long as they have the job coming out of spring training. Also, think about those established veterans, like David Peralta, Melky Cabrera, Brett Gardner, Brandon Phillips. These are guys who have some experience with high-value track records, but some questions. Sometimes those questions should be answered with that extra dollar bid. The most accurate round turned out to be the first. That's probably no surprise given the amount of thermally augmented air that gets spent on the topic before every season. Six of the 15 players by ADP are also first-rounders by year-to-date. Jose Altuve, Goldschmidt I mentioned, Bryce Harper, Trey Turner, now out with injury, Max Scherzer, and Charlie Blackman. Another four players from the ADP first round, Mike Trout, Mookie Betts, Clayton Kershaw, and Nolan Arenado, are year-to-date second-rounders. Two first-rounders, of course, Josh Donaldson and especially Madison Bumgarner, were injured early and fell out of the rankings. The second round had some non-injury-related disappointments, with players falling into much lower rounds. A few of the names that stand out here include Trevor Story, who's now barely rosterable, Miguel Cabrera is under $7 in the 16th round year-to-date, and Jonathan Villar, a year-to-date 13th rounder. Three Cleveland players, Corey Kluber, Francisco Lindor, and Edwin Encarnacion, are in the 10th, 9th, and 8th rounds year-to-date, but that doesn't count Kluber's excellent start on Thursday. Two second-rounders, Joey Votto and Chris Sale, have actually moved up to the top rung. Now, speaking of player movement, let's turn to some other individual players who have been way better than their ADPs. Owners with even a few of these players are going to be very competitive this year, unless they've also got guys on the other side of the coin. At the top of the big movers is another veteran slugger, and Mark Reynolds is also in a good situation. Reynolds was undrafted by ADP and is a second-rounder year-to-date. Of course, remember, at the time the ADPs were being compiled, owners expected first base in Coors Field would be manned by Ian Desmond. Just back of Reynolds' plus-28 round gain is Justin Smoke of Toronto, another ADP free agent, and he's a third-rounder, having a breakout power and batting average season. Interestingly, LA sensation Cody Bellinger was considered draftable by enough owners that he snuck into the late reserve, and he's all the way up to the second round as well for a plus 26. Also at plus 26, our first pitcher, can you guess, Jason Vargas of Kansas City, an ADP free agent who is, believe it or not, and I scarcely do even though I'm looking at it right now, all the way up into the year-to-date fourth round. Two more of the plus-25 big jump players will be expected names. Ryan Zimmerman's having a great year for Washington, and Avasail Garcia of the White Sox was a reserve pick as well. They both made it into the top rounds, first and second, respectively. Logan Morrison, Aaron Hicks, and Trey Mancini were all free agents, now worth fifth-round status. That's a big jump. And of course, there's Aaron Judge, who went from the late 23rd round by ADP all the way to the first round, and in fact has the second highest fantasy value in all of baseball, just behind Goldschmidt. Honorable mentions to some other year-to-date first-rounders, Corey Dickerson, Elvis Andrews, and Jose Ramirez, who improved by six or more rounds to join the best of the elite. Just as owners with a good collection from the previous groups are probably sitting pretty, guys with more than a few of these next players are likely not going to be showering in Yoohoo this year, unless they do so for private reasons. We'll leave aside Bumgarner, Donaldson, and Story, because we've already talked about them briefly, and we'll lead with a closer. Our oldest Chapman was a late third or early fourth ADP guy, but has returned barely $2 this year. Of course, he was hurt. He's a reserve round value. Ten other players have declined by 20 rounds or more. Many injuries again, of course, Noah Syndergaard, Zach Britton, Adrian Beltre, and Danny Duffy have all missed some major time. And don't forget, Starling Marte, a top guy in ADPs, got suspended. But some players have been playing, just not nearly well enough. A few top pitchers are among the worst performers, led by Justin Verlander of Detroit. He's minus 21. Kyle Hendricks and Jake Arrieta of the Cubs are minus 21 and minus 20, respectively. And if we extend into the minus 19, 18, and 17 cohorts, we see such potential aces as Masahiro Tanaka, Cole Hamels, and the long-injured David Price. Among hitters with 20 round or worse declines, we find Jonathan Lucroy of Texas, who went at a premium in many leagues, but is producing only at reserve round level so far. Going again into the minus 19s gets us Carlos Gonzalez and Kyle Schwarber, and Schwarber's already been sent down. Of course, we have to understand that all of this is just a snapshot in time, and that the players who are way up today could be way down tomorrow, and vice versa. The more interesting aspect of all of this is to identify where the value pockets are this season, but that only helps if we can follow up and see how 2017 finishes and how it compares with past seasons. Is there something significant about the value surfacing ADP rounds 17, 20, and 23 this year? Or will it be maybe 16, 19, and 22 next season? It'd be interesting to know. In the meantime, the safest bet is probably to assume that water will find its own level. Jason Vargas is probably not going to stay at a 2.29 ERA with a 113 whip. Hit rate and strand rate anomalies suggest Rick Porcello, minus 16 rounds for Boston, is probably not a 5 ERA 150 whip pitcher as he's been thus far this year. So there will be some buying opportunities and some selling opportunities on all of this. Just don't expect immediate and certain change. We are still in the realm of the small samples that Ron Chandler and others have long warned us will lead to volatility and therefore to unpredictability. And as the season progresses, that rest-of-season sample is going to be getting smaller all the time. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 30th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 25 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests for this Friday edition of the show. From Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, One of our favorite guests, Todd Zola, longtime friend of the show, tremendous fantasy analyst, and a great conversation for me every time I get the chance to talk to Todd. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. And our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And please send us a message on our email address, BHQRadio, all one word, at gmail.com where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday when our featured guest expert will be Peter Kreutzer from AskRotoman.com and Tout Wars. That's Peter Kreutzer on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long.
1: Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.